to The Wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point, dear listener, would be through chapter 17 of Lightbringer by Pierce Brown. I don't know why I paused there. That was, you know, I'm, eh. all right. This falling part. Okay. Hey there, this is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words in Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. So I have gotten so used to trying to like fit all of the like the the part and the book and the number in the series and like just going all overboard and I've been trying not to do that but now like it feels too short. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, just a remnant from all our shit with Mistborn, I guess. Right, right because there was a lot there that we were covering often frequently and whatnot so yeah yeah i'm excited there was a lot to talk about in some of those previous books but man oh man we're only talking about chapters 12 through 17 today of pierce brown's lightbringer and there is so fucking much to talk about inside of these chapters it's again it just speaks to the reason that we do shows a little bit differently like with greenbone we covered a few more chapters and i'm reminded that like there's so goddamn much <laughs> to, to this story and to the way that Pierce Brown writes that, that it, it definitely is it's a whole thing to take it apart. So, yeah. Um, um, but before we go, other go, point of yeah, order, yeah. like about this episode, I'd like to apologize. Mm-hmm. We were recording the night of, we're recording Thursday night. We're doing it live for the Patreon. So if you want to get in on impromptu live recordings, you could join us on patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. But usually this is the day it, this episode would have come out this morning and lots of things have happened and it just didn't work. So I'm going to be editing this Friday morning and hopefully we'll have it out Friday evening, maybe Saturday if if things don't get done well enough. But yeah, I'd like to apologize for that. Sorry about that. Oh, I this that had nothing to do with you. That had a hundred percent to do with my crazy work schedule and life and everything else. So, mm. thank you for apologizing for on behalf of us, of course. <laughs> but yeah, just don't want to don't want to let you run away with the blame on that one. I'll tell you. I mean, you don't have to do it, buddy. But PJ, I want to hear about what you're drinking. I want to know. People want to know. So I was racking my brain trying to think of a good cocktail for this this section. And if I had a golden bowl, this would have been so much easier, but I don't. So I had to like play up the blood and I I went with a (laughs) cocktail that I'm naming the Bowl of Tharsis. And it is just a Negroni. But it has a name, so <laughs> technically you just it's made it a Negroni. <laughs> technically, it's slightly different. It's a very large format Negroni. It is two <laughs> ounces of Empress Gin, so butterfly pea flower, pea flower gin. Yep, an ounce and a half of Campari, and an ounce and a half of Lillet Blanc. So not the one to one to one that you're accustomed to 
as far as classic Negroni recipes go. Um, just a little bit heavier on the gin. And then butterfly pea, pea flower gives this really intense, like, what would you call it? Like cherry Kool-Aid color of Negroni as opposed to sort of the the orangey red color that you've... Hmm. probably come to typically anticipate. Yeah. And then Lillet Blanc instead of sweet red vermouth. But that's mostly because that's the vermouth that I have. And I, I, I didn't have another choice, but I really am enjoying this. And my, my other option for gin was Bombay Sapphire. I haven't been loving Bombay lately. Just a little bit too bright and harsh. Not Harsh is the wrong term, but I don't know, too... Strictly botanical, I guess. Mm-hmm. I understand. Strictly botanical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No good. No good. We don't love strictly botanical we, we things. Want, we want some balance. We want some softness to our gin. I would agree with that, generally speaking. I'm generally behind that, especially now or more recently. My drink is incredibly botanical. So okay. we'll talk about <laughs> that in a minute. What are, you, what are you following yourself? Not bad for a, a strip mall brewery. I think I've talked about it on the show mm. before. Triple IPA. You had it from, last week, I think. Oh, that yeah, that probably makes sense. This is the same four pack. <laughs> <laughs> I that was tracks. going to do the flatulent or flatulent flamingo, which you and I shared mm. at the brewery mm-hmm. at Lupulin. You last time you were here, we went and hung out and played Do Rock together and drank. You beers. mean a month ago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Was it uh, even a month ago? Was it three weeks ago? I don't, I don't it was something even, like that. I don't even. But they, I don't fucking they remember, it. dude. So I got a four pack of yeah. it, and it's very, very nice. tasty. But Kaylin has taken a liking to it, so I wanted to save some in reserve for her. So I went with my remaining strip mall. Nice. Yeah. Cool. That Following that up is a big old jug of water. I also got a big old cup of water. I feel you gotta stay hydrated you know mm-hmm. it's kind of the gotta the move get wet get wet. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> what a what a moment all right good work what are you drinking crossland pj i'm having something that i'm calling the green death now if you had to guess what the green death is what would you guess you know that i have no core spirits left at home uh, but you do have chartreuse or mm-hmm. you typically have chartreuse. So I would assume either chartreuse or absinthe Okay, as a base. You mentioned botanical. So is it a necromancer? Did you make a, a like, or like a corpse reviver number two? Maybe? <laughs> I haven't even tried it yet. I'm just going to, we're just going to give it a go. Okay. Oh, that's actually not bad. It's actually pretty pleasant. No. So what I did, I was like, you know what? When when you came on and you're like, I'm going to go pour myself water or something like that to drink on the show. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go fuck around with my all my random shit and make something right now. And I just did it off the cuff. And I was like, what if I made a green chartreuse old fashioned? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't actually do that. But that's where my brain went immediately. <laughs> I was like, it sounds like a terrible idea. I could see so it. instead. It, it could work. It could work. So instead, what I was going to do when I was making it, I was like, let's do uh, the green chartreuse in about two ounces. We'll keep it like the the sort of low ball format. And then I was like, OK, well, let's use Peychaud's bitters just for funsies instead. So use a couple dashes of Peychaud's to kind of round out and give it that sort of like the cherry, the little bit of absinthe notes to it. And then the black licorice. 
and then maraschino and similar to an old fashioned about a half ounce of maraschino actually somewhere between a half and a quarter ounce of maraschino and then have a splash of grenadine similar to an old fashioned so okay. homemade grenadine and it actually tastes pretty good i didn't expect that <laughs> that's why i called it the green death <laughs> yeah sound more contagious than yawning maybe not it actually doesn't yeah. sound bad at all Mm-mm. that's something i would totally garnish with like a charred cinnamon stick something like that you could you could do charred cinnamon i'm imagining rosemary as i'm drinking it okay that's kind of where my nose goes that my could, palate goes it's more too. the give me give me the like herbal top note as I'm sticking my nose in it. And I think that that would reinforce mm-hmm. it in a nice way. You could do that with like, or, or lemon peel even on top would be great. Obviously, because I'm not going to be here for another two weeks. I don't have any fresh citrus. I haven't bothered to restock my bar. Yeah. I'm out of oranges too. Yeah. But you don't have a fucking excuse. <laughs> yeah. That's. <laughs> Got him. You're right. I'm just kidding. I've been home for 15 hours or whatever we said earlier, (laughs) 17 hours. But following that up, I have one small step again. I just ran to the brewery that was mankind, the brewery that was nearby and grabbed a crowler of it because I was like, it's close and it's delicious. And I don't have to like either drink all the beer or try to fuck with the highway when I don't want to. So, you know, that's where we're at. That's the kind of that's the kind of week it's been. (laughs) Sounds like a good week. It's actually just today. That's to clarify. Today, this is yeah. just, <laughs> this has not been a week. It's been today. Cool. All right. Well, before we talk too much about the chapters, PJ, how'd you feel about this week's reading? How are you feeling? I am kind of amped. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are some great speeches in this week. There, yeah. I mean, there, there's some very well spoken individuals. There's, there's a lot that goes on, but mostly like, Thinking Virginia and thinking we must take Mars or Mars must fall. Like it, it's a pretty uh, energizing week so far, just oratorially. It's it's really bad that like Mars must fall is such like a good like chant and speech and cheer. And you're it like, sucks how good the speech is. <laughs> but wait, that's not my hero. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of moments of like fuck yeah that's so good good work way to go lysander and then oh god (laughs) atalantia sucks so much (laughs) yeah that it's like there's just this briefest flash of like oh finally someone that's reasonable and still like a slaver in the worst kind of way i mean not not literally the worst kind of way we've determined that obviously with atalantia but oh man where have the shepherds gone where have the shepherds gone all right with that let's start let's start talking about it let's we'll start with part two rampart so obviously we're entering part two here and to read the little quote that we get again from homer is the alarm was soon carried to the city and when they heard the war cry the people came out at daybreak till the plain was filled with horsemen and foot soldiers and with the gleam of armor of course, Homer, again, from the Odyssey, talking about kind of the the reminder of war and these sort of similar feelings that we've seen kind of happen before and reminding of, hey, this is the time. Grab the shields, grab it and go. And I don't know. What do you think about that going in 
to the starter list. I mean, pairing that with the end of this section, I kind of I feel like this quote's talking about the people of Mars for a little bit. That doesn't feel <laughs> great. What is the definition of rampart? A rampart is a... So to me, it's like the top of a castle, right? Is like the rampart. So rampart is a protective barrier, a bulwark, a broad embankment on a raised fortification, usually surrounded by a parapet, a wall-like ridge, but generally an embankment, a fortification. So in 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 the grand scheme of things, I am viewing Phobos as the rampart. Mm. Mm. I I'd see. Assume. Okay, Phobos, the, the rampart for Mars. Got it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot to talk about inside of this week's chapter, and there's a good amount of Phobos to talk about, too. So, can't wait to... So, I can't tell you how emotionally rewarded I felt <laughs> when Phobos <laughs> returned to the story <laughs> the way that it did. I just we about... Were, like, I don't know why we were riffing on it so much, but we talked a lot about Phobos. <laughs> We talked a fuck ton about Phobos for some godforsaken reason. I don't even, Justice I think it was just that I had read about it and I was just like, it's, it's ridiculous as far as a moon goes. Why is it a moon? But also, you know, yeah, I don't know. In its own way, we did get justice for Phobos. We'll talk about that though, of course. Until Once it's we get like there. obliterated. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You're, you're a little concerned. They've got to deal with it somehow. <laughs> all right we'll start off here with chapter 12 lyria truffle pig so lyria begs the question left with us at the end of dark age where volga's whereabouts after being nabbed by fa as well as the fact that she's stuck trying to figure out what's going on with the parasite the figment in her head that seems to potentially be linked to sun industries and she's out in the asteroid belt which is the space between you know the rim and the core of course I also find that in its own way, Lyria's first chapter mirrors Darrow's inside of the story and that they're both reminded of the mine and on asteroids of a sort. Uh, and that gives us this nice parallel because obviously they are parallels in their own way of, you know, two different reds coming from the mines. Yeah. Different paths. It's such a great call. I hadn't even made any sort of connection between the two, but it makes a lot of sense. You mean between the two characters? No, I mean between... Or just like the starting points. The two starting points for this book. Mm, Okay, got it. I was like, PJ, come on. The the parallels abound. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, But we're introduced very quickly to a cast and crew of folks of whom are on this asteroid and have been with Lyria, gave her this moniker, Truffle Pig, of which she admonishes, of course. And he's pretty hysterical. I think the entire group, you can tell, probably had a couple more pages than what we actually got. Again, given the the very long draft that this book (laughs) came from that was ultimately ultimately called down. But yeah, I, I really like it that there's this note on nicknames and her not wanting to be called Truffle Pig, of course. As, but Howlers aren't generally allowed to change their own name. And Lyria is stuck with the name Truffle Pig, while Fell's name is Badass Motherfucker. Okay, couple things. Is that just a joke or is that actually his call sign? Definitely a joke. Okay. It's definitely a joke. Yeah, figured. <laughs> I, he was being cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> 
this is a call sign, not a howler name, correct? Yes, but ultimately, but, I mean, they're kind of used interchangeably. Kind yeah. of, but howlers are a specific battalion. I don't even know that you would probably call them a battalion because they're just Pegasus. They're in or Pegasus Legion, Legion or in their own thing. They're they're not even necessarily a legion, though. I think I think they're more of like a strike force than okay. anything else. But yeah, I, I see your point. Yeah, like it, th- there's a yeah. distinction to becoming a howler. Yeah, as right, they, totally, totally. Yeah. But it's easy enough to just call it a howler name. All good. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like the name Truffle Pig. It's. I think she mostly hates that they call her Piggy for short, like a nickname <laughs> for her call sign. Yeah, Piggy. <laughs> this is pretty great. I don't know. I didn't realize how much I missed Lyria until you get this chapter. And it's like, oh, she is still mm-hmm. kind of smarmy. Yeah. And smart. Um, I did want to. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. There, there's go ahead. also the introduction of Fell brings the introduction of the term heavy metal red and heavy metal being like a single word camel cased. I'm Dip assuming it's because right. he doesn't have bionic or biologic arms and legs. He has bionic arms and legs. But I'm curious if there's a specific further distinction to gaining that title. And it's only mentioned once. PJ, know. the term has been used before. Has for the it? record in Dark Age to describe Rona and Iron Gold to describe Rona becoming a heavy metal god when she enters into the hmm. the the super crazy armor. I forget what it's called. The, uh, oh, the, what the fuck are those called? Because she's it's like a tank thing, right? Like, it's not just. It's the, like a Jaeger. Yeah, I actually I think that is what it is. It is a Jaeger. Yeah. Okay. Drakenjäger. Something. Drakenjäger. There yep. there it is. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. I was like, it is a Jaeger. It's something like that. God <laughs> damn it. What's it called? Good call. Thank you. But yeah, that's that's the other time that it's used, and I believe specifically the phrase heavy metal god is used. Okay. In the same sort of I don't of remember that being camel case like this. Yeah. Yeah. But I believe but it. But similar. I mean, it's realistically, I think it's just like just like Gory Dam or like something else where it's more of like a a sort of red phrase. Okay. That makes I sense. Know, I, get a, I get a lot of weird metal vibes now from Reds to now in this like post post society. Because obviously it's definitely new in the sequel series. It's not in the original. But mm-hmm. so the drone finds something as it's wandering around this asteroid. And we've been led to believe that Lyria, of course, has this thing in her head that can help find, but it's been off for a while. And it finds an ancient bunker, and we find a mysterious green substance that is slowly killing Crossland while continuing on this podcast no but we do find the green death an antique bioweapon that is vacuum resistant and wiped out many colonies before this as as fell kind of recounts more contagious i think i even made the joke earlier as it said in the text though more contagious than a a, a yawn yeah literally this seems pretty bad we haven't really touched a lot on bioweapons but we have been we, we've been introduced to them in the form of threats and like looming threats from Atalantia and I feel like there was one other maybe from Octavia. I can't remember. But it, w- it was so ominous and so like extreme that I felt like this would have been way more ancient than it was. It's like 200 years old, which is a long time to be sure. But given that the conquering was like 800 years ago, it feels like this would have been – like this is – Octavia's dad, basically. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, kind of. Or within that time frame, right? Mm -hmm. Or just before. That might be like, yeah, right. Octavia's grandpa, maybe. Yeah, somewhere in that space, dad, grandpa, somewhere in that handoff. So I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. It does, it does still have kind of like an old, unique feel to it, of course, but it isn't quite as ancient, perhaps as, as it would suggest, especially when you just consider the length of, of time inside of the series. So I mm-hmm. definitely get it. What was I, what was I thinking here? Oh, and there's the other note, of course, on this that from sort of the meta perspective. One of the things that Pierce Brown has said that he originally had a much larger sort of disease centered plot. And I wonder if this is sort of a remnant of that during COVID. Obviously, he went through a complete rewrite. We talked about this and we'll probably continue to bring it up. But the massive drafts and all of the things that were thrown away over various times. I can't help but think that that maybe this is even just a nod to that draft in some way, shape or form. And the, the story that he ditched. So, yeah. Because it didn't feel like he should write that in the midst of a pandemic, probably. That would make sense. Yeah. Can you remind me, when did Dark Age come out? Dark Age originally came out in 2018. Okay. I want to say. Double checking real real quick right now. 2019, actually. Drafts probably a year or two before that. Like He's been totally conceivable. It's probably confirmed that those. Uh, oh yeah, he's he's confirmed pre, it in interview. Yeah. Pre-COVID, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, a lot of a lot of Dark Age too, to some degree, starts to hint at something. So there is kind of an overarching question, even that we have now, of like, yeah. is there something else? That, you that's did what I was talking about of, bringing it up. Like, yeah, like the threats of biological weapons from Atlantia. Yeah, and that's also not to say that it's off the table, but I just can't help but wonder, you know, is this maybe a remnant of of some version of that plot? Yeah. I'm just kind of pointing at. I believe it. So the pair emerge from the bunker and are immediately notice that something is amiss as the snowball, Ephraim's ship for the last two books, is split in two by a giant beam of light. Doesn't the dust seem like it arrive. should happen. It doesn't seem like it should happen as these blue these black blips appear. And the dust walkers drop quickly from the ships and are fucking terrifying as they show up and absolutely rend our party asunder. Our pilot is blown to bits. Lyria left holding her foot, not even realizing that she's gone as she runs. Lyria at one point sits down behind a rock, pulls a trigger, and it never goes off. And her hand is just floating there as her suit seals around it. Just fucking brutal shit. I loved all of the description throughout this section. The emotion that's Mm -hmm. conveyed. It's it's heavy, it's manic, and adrenaline pumping. Mm-hmm. Especially Lyria coming to the realization that her hand's disconnected. Like, it's... It, or or that Zyra. Zyra, right? I think. The pilot. Like, just... I know Oxus is the green, but yeah. Oxus is the green, yeah. It's, it's something... It starts with an X. Zarya. Zarya. You're right. Okay. Yeah, close. I was close. But, yeah. like... We're dealing with with zero gravity. We're dealing with high stress. We're dealing with adrenaline. We're dealing with all of these like external factors that make it really, really difficult to have a solid bearing on what's going on because I, I'm sure it'd be kind of difficult or a lot more difficult to understand. I'm, no, I'm not pulling a full person in zero G, you know? 
like mm-hmm. a, a, a leg is easier to pull, but it's not like that. I don't know. It, it was just fun in a very morbid and stressful kind of way. Yeah, I was totally with you on the front of grabbing the leg and like running with it and obviously like dragging the body behind, like you're saying in zero G when you've got skip boots, we assume not hard, not a big deal. But then to only be holding onto the leg as it was cleaved off. Pretty, pretty crazy. The fucking coldness of fell. <laughs> like you can let go of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very real mm. and very brutal. But I mean, Lyria in the next chapter or so uh, reveals how numb she is to death as well when she learns that Fell's dead. Like it's it's all business as usual, unfortunately. Right. This is just sort of reality, especially for her. I mean, she has been through so much as far as the sort of amount of death that she's experienced. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty clear given this section, just how much training she's gone through and how much she's adapted and evolved and grown since we've left, since we've left her in dark age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She has grown. I mean, if nothing else, you can definitely say that she is much more independent now than she ever was before. Mm-hmm. But she's also she's, gained training and discipline. Like she's, she's like noticeably more disciplined, I think. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely more disciplined. I mean, I think she's grown in a lot of ways and obviously we'll get to talk about that more. Yeah. So Fell is quickly torn apart, like you had mentioned. Ultimately, he dies as well at the hands of the Deathbringers as they try to hold them off within the bunker. One punctures down. Obviously, that's when she loses her hand, I believe, is when she's in there aiming up. And the pair... Sorry sorry to nitpick. You said Deathbringers, which is such a dope name, but it's (laughs) Dustwalkers. Dustwalkers. I keep doing that. The... What is it? It's so I was playing through the only thing that I have done since like coming home. That's been like me time outside of doing some reading. Thankfully, as I played a little bit of Horizon Zero Dawn and there is a mob in there called Deathbringer. And so I think that's where my brain is. It's, okay. it's like a boss mob type. That's yeah. I've been curious about that game. I'm going to look and it's see a lot of fun. It's what it's the great. what the performance on Steam Deck is. Maybe go for it. No idea on that front because I'm playing it on PS5, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's great though. I'm having a great time. It's the most fun that I've had in an open world game since Elden Ring. And it's one of the few games that it feels like earns being an open world because it also isn't so fucking big that it's unplayable, which is the other thing. All right. Where it's like, there's just too much on the map. You know, that's often a problem. Right. Sorry. Also, it feels like a hunting ranger sim, which is so cool. Mm. That is pretty cool. Yeah, really enjoy it. Anyway, but they're dinos. They're 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 like Terminator dinos. It's so weird and cool. Very and eventually it makes sense. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. Anyway, so we. I, I want to ask a question within this little section where ultimately they're going to be set for abduction here. They're. We're, we're confronted by very clearly a gold, a dusk walker of who dust walker, not dusk walker. <laughs> I keep just making up terms. Um, a dusk also a walker. dope term. 
I, I'd, <laughs> not, I'd get behind not bad, not bad. learning about dusk walkers too. <laughs> yeah. They're um, like kind of like n- not quite to the level of daywalker blade vampires, but like they could do with a little they bit. They could of do it with a little bit of they're, sunlight. They're like golden hour. They got that like golden hour <laughs> time frame. <laughs> the golden hour vampires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> golden hour and like just the green flash of sun in the morning. <laughs> that's that's all they have. Anyway, so I wanted to ask your thoughts on if you had any opinions about who you think this gold is that is on the asteroid. Is there anyone that like it reminded you of in the moment from Iron Gold Dark Age? I mean, it reminded me of Serafina, but I know she's gone. She's super gone. I'm I'm drawing a blank on a lot of the Rim Golds that we've met. I forget her name at the moment, and I would love if someone listening to this can figure that out for me because I cannot remember it off the top of my head. But I'm thinking. It reminds me the most of the Rimgold, of whom was kind of the cop that almost killed Cassius and Lysander off the bat. Not Serafina, of whom, of course, they find in the ship, derelict, but the leader of that task force, that peacekeeping force. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd believe I totally that. forget her name. I totally forget her name. But that's the one that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of her for some reason. So that's just locked in my head. But we also, we learn about the truth flares, of whom, of course, sound also terrifying as far as all of the rest of the group. That's a real one. That's what I said it right that time, too. Yeah. And a lot more on them, too. That's, I mean, the immediate connection for me is Illithid mind flares from mm. D&D. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not brain-eating tentacle monster people. You know. I don't. Okay. I, I, I mean, they they seem like a like torture force, basically, like a yeah, a truth finding by whatever means necessary kind of operation. People. Yeah, they definitely do sound very reminiscent of something that feels more Star Warsy in a way to me than hmm. Red Rising, or maybe even a little bit more Dooney than traditional, right? Like it feels and and I feel that about a couple of things specifically in this week's reading, but this is one of those that stands out to me as feeling it reminds me of dude, I don't know if you remember this, but in like Empire Strikes Back and in A New Hope, there are those rooms with like all the needles or like the weird headgear. That seems like a truth flare to me, but if it were a person, you know? Yeah. All the weird torture implements that don't seem like they're doing anything, but are just really vaguely threatening. <laughs> it, it almost feels like like the rims equivalent of the Duke of Hands. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good call. That makes sense to me. But I assume it's a it's a small group, or you know, a crypt, it's, a, it's a, group it's a, a task force. Yeah. But before they're able to do anything with that. They are quickly torn apart as a bunch of obelisks emerge from the surface of the asteroid and kill them all. And then also a little floating Orby dude comes out and starts stabbing people's bodies. (laughs) Yeah. So every planet, including ours, needs defense obelisks. I'm pretty sure. Uh, Yeah. 
want mm-hmm. one of those protecting our planet. We definitely need defense obelisks. Uh, no question. Floated dude is a Seon, right? Like we, we've Going crossed over into Brandon the Casimir. <laughs> Please call it the Casimir one. You know, Cosmere. Yeah. You Sorry. said, yeah, I, Kaz, Cashmere. Cashmere. We crossed into the Cashmere. We're in the Cashmere know. now. <laughs> I mean, okay, so if you think about it, technically speaking, in the Red Rising universe, the Cosmere is finished. Brandon Sanderson got to write all the books. It's over. It exists. It's canon, right? Brandon Sanderson so, still alive say? right now as a no he's very dead he's not a part thousand of the year old man <laughs> with a he is giant pile All of right. books behind We're him so, <laughs> this is so good <laughs> it's some separate devil's cup <laughs> um, probably not devil's cup but you know yeah no you know god it does it i mean it's definitely not a co because it is a big orb big terrifying orb god what they call it again not the not an oculus it was a sentinel god sentinel yeah that's what it was called thank you good call yeah what a big deal pretty neat pretty Pretty neat neat. yeah but then the orb starts talking to her right were you pleased hey sister why do you hide in the warm blood (laughs) oh no they're gonna pull which is gonna pull her out very weird i like (laughs) i really contemplated the idea that this was like the one and done chapter of Lyria and they would like strip her like body out and extract the the figure Whoa. from her. I really like in this moment was thinking like fuck. <laughs> Lyria's dead yeah. already. <laughs> like the last two books were just reducing down to two POVs real quick. <laughs> like we're just gonna yeah, we're going to get rid of everyone. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I did okay. Let me add, let me explain yeah. my thought process on that. The moving from a full cast to strictly Tim Gerard Reynolds makes even more sense if you've got fewer POVs than this. So just having Darrow, Lysander, and Virginia. Am I am I missing any? If Ephraim and Lirio. I didn't say Severo. Oh, I thought you did. I so Dar- and Lysander. Lysander. Yeah. So just having three POVs instead of five, technically four, if one chapter of Lyria exists, made sense to me to not have a full cast of voice actors doing it. Yeah. So like I mean, it's it a meta reason, three. but like I, that combined with the way that this chapter ends, I'm like, all right, we're we're done with Lyria. That's fair. Pierce Brown did clarify before the book came out in a couple of interviews that some of the reason why was ultimately just everyone wanted Tim Gerard Reynolds. So why not give the people what they want? I'm down with it. I like him. This I was about to say this segues into my kind of like final question that I wanted to ask you at the end of this first Lyria chapter is how do you feel about transitioning to TGR doing Lyria for the first time? How do you feel about it? I kind of like the consistency. I have been doing my best and it's I'm getting used to it, especially having gone through the entire series on one X. I am trying to not go into two X to like maximize the number of listens that I can get in Mm -hmm. just because I, I think he gives a better performance in his natural speaking cadence. But that was one thing with listening at two X is 
each voice actor speaks at a, at a slightly different cadence. So consistency-wise, it makes sense to me. He does a great, he has such a great range of accents, which we haven't been able to explore very much before, given that he was primarily Darrow. And the the few times where he's talking to other people with very strongly different accents are limited and short-lived. So it's fun to see him really play with his range. There's obviously the sort of COVID snafu where his his voice is fucked, to, to put it maybe in stronger terms than it needs to be, but noticeably different. And that's frustrating and annoying and I'm sure really hard to reckon with on his level, but he does an amazing job of portraying all of these characters uniquely and distinctly and I couldn't be happier with it. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. And I, I really think that he did, he did an excellent job transitioning in and switching up not only accents, but adding a completely new character to the repertoire here uh, in a very different style, which I, I very much appreciated in the same realm as you. I also want to add that this is the part, this is the chapter that I point to when people ask me, about like sound production and when you can tell that things have kind of gone awry on the side of production, not on recording. And you can very clearly tell in this chapter where there are lines in takes because someone didn't go and level them out consistently. There are very, very clear moments in which you can tell that a line was dubbed in or rechanged and like not not congruous with the rest of it. And I don't pin that on the performance. I pin that entirely on production mm-hmm. and not double checking and making the sound level. I'm glad that you had kind of talked to me about that beforehand. You didn't point to this chapter specifically, but I know. No, right. <laughs> I knew that this yeah. was it. I would have been maybe a little confused. And I'm, I'm curious if it's just because we deal with like spoken word recordings so often that we're able to notice it. Uh, I, I wonder if it's a, a widely noticed point of difference or if we're just uh, th- kind of in a unique position going through all of our podcast constantly. Yeah, I, I feel like it's a combination of the two. We are in a unique position going through the podcast ourselves and, and what we do. Um, but at the same time, I think that there is definitely a contingent of people of whom felt like this was strange uh, or odd or not recorded well or pinned things, you know, without without knowing or understanding full context. And that's where, you know, I want to step up and be like, hey, I think TGR did a great job. I think that ultimately someone either had to rush in changes and didn't have enough time to maybe put as much polish on that section. Or there are some other sections um, earlier in the first couple of chapters as well. I think it's pretty smooth from here on out. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's mm-hmm. a couple of spots that were just like very clear gaps that you also kind of neat because you usually don't get to see behind the curtain on those kind of things uh, because it is so well done and it is so like glossed over and polished up but it is kind of fun to be like oh clearly there was a line edit here that we had to go back in and redub or a take that someone didn't like or you know something yeah. like that so yeah er- earlier in this book in in part <laughs> one there are a couple lines that you can clearly tell tgr's voice is different but there's just a couple lines here and there. This one was a little bit more aggressive. 
I guess. It, yeah. And it's, and, it's not just a voice. It's it's mastering things. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think that it was very clear that he was getting over being sick in some of the, the early stuff. Right. So, yeah. All right. With that, we go into chapter 13, Lyria, the Rose's Game. Lyria wakes her hand reattached in an odd place where odd creatures warble a song and were greeted again by a garden in this moment, mirroring that desire and obsession with quiet that these folks with the violent world around them find comfort in. There we meet with none other than Matteo returning to us for the first time in a long, long, long damn time. I got to say, I'm so glad to have Matteo back in the story. I am too. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember when was the last time we actually had Matteo in the series. Was he in this trilogy? I don't think so. This is PJ. The first time that we've met Matteo in a long time. This is not, not in this trilogy. Have we seen Matteo? I've been to their house. We've, we've heard about them, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For, for whatever reason, I I really thought Ephraim interacted with Matteo, but nope. Okay. Nope. Boo. Boo Boo on you. That's fine. I'll be right How do you sometime. feel about having Mateo back in the story, though? Oh, great. Yeah. He seems like he's always seemed mature and knowledgeable and had a, had a really sort of great compass on him. But you can tell throughout this section how much the last decade within the Republic and within the war and, and within everything that's been going on has really shaped him and honed him and matured him even beyond the, the maturity that Darrow was shaped by. Yeah. He's, there's something that's interesting that I feel, especially when reapproaching Mateo. And that is that I think that he was, I, I love that you're using the term maturity here because he was obviously a part of the rebellion as Quicksilver's husband. But then in addition, it feels like this is a side of him that we've never seen. This is a more full view of Mateo, especially someone of whom has spent a lot of time with Quicksilver and loves him and like understands his brain and agrees with some of his ideas and theories about like silver ideas and theories about like capitalism versus socialism, which is fascinating. The fact that he kind of leans into that ideology, I don't know. It's it's all mm-hmm. it's all very it, it completes a picture that was otherwise just a pixel, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And we we saw kind of in Red Rising, at the very least, we saw a very one dimensional view of Mateo as the sort of dancing master or what, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call him, the the court advisor. Yeah, Cortesian. I mean, like he was, mm-hmm. he was teaching him all of the, the formal aspects of right. life. So seeing a more, seeing a dressed down, but more encompassing view of him is a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. I definitely agree with you and i think that it's so great to see this sort of more full i don't know the full the full perspective of him so but we also learn a little bit more about this mysterious asteroid but not all of it of course so 
what do you think is going on here? Or what's your what's your thought on what this place really is? I mean, I can only really assume that it's Oculus. Not understanding what that exactly means, but given the Sentinels and the capacity to repair and or extract the figment from Lyria, the connection to Quicksilver, who bankrolled the and and kind of was the brainchild behind Oculus as we understand it. This is either Oculus itself or very, very closely connected to it. Okay. All right. Do you want to make that a bet? Do you want to drink for that? Do you want to? Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Make that a little, a little Betty poo. So, okay. Making that more specific. (laughs) Ah, fuck. Uh Okay. This is not Oculus itself, but it is the Oculus workshop. It's, it's a satellite operation working towards the maintenance and uh, working to make sure that Oculus stays operational. All right. I'm taking that one down. Uh, To repeat it real quickly here, this is not Oculus itself, but it is the Oculus Workshop. It's satellite operation working towards the maintenance and ensuring its continued operation. Perfect. Does that work? Works for me. Cool. I really like there, there's this line that's tucked inside of here as well. Mateo's line about the dreams of red feel feels fascinating to me when you add in the context of EO's dream into it. It is a dream of suffering until suffering no longer occurs. And we get this this sort of conversation about the people in their different places within the dreams um, that have came with the rising. Right. We've got the father of the dream of whom is, is Fitchner. There's the promise of the dream, which is Darrow. There's the dream itself, which is EO. And then Mateo obviously says that there are two fathers of the dream and that we shouldn't look down upon that necessarily. But I can't help but instead pin Quicksilver as the purse of the dream. I mean, he is also a father, but in many ways, I I just like father, promise, purse. Yeah. (laughs) Personally. Yeah. I like that. If we want to give them all distinct views. The view on dreams themselves is something that I hadn't considered and it is kind of depressing to dig into a little bit. I would have assumed that any sort of dreaming in any sort of non-reality would have been viewed as an escape as opposed to a taunt, which is kind mm-hmm. of how he seems to present it. Like he reads despised or despised dreams more than pinks because of the distinction between suffering and what was the what was the term he used that it's like suffering and them like fighting right and like struggling suffering and suffer and struggle that was the two so like it's just a completely different view on dreams than what i'm used to and i had never considered the idea of dreams being a negative thing for an oppressed people. Oh yeah. Yeah. That it's just continue. I mean, it's, it's the whole thing of like, what's the difference between a dream and a nightmare, right? Like, and, and living a nightmare and then waking up in that nightmare. And, and Mateo even poses that as like, which was the, the worst sort of thing, the nightmare or the reality, you know, that he was facing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very difficult 
And it's it's fascinating to me then, too, that when you pin EO's dream against the concept of Mateo's perception of red dreams. I mean, it's that's that's like a tough thing to parse of like this is suffering to survive. And this is the same sort of struggle to survive that Reds did while they were asleep. So, yeah, I mean, I find that fascinating, especially when you pin the two, the actual dreaming versus the sort of philosophical aspiration of a dream against each other. Yeah. Very neat. So following this up, there is a conversation about Camp 121 and sort of the way that like Darrow's name was never tarnished and and just sort of a, a conversation that happens around those camps. But the apology for 121 rings kind of hollow to me coming from Mateo, not necessarily that he's not genuine about it, but there's this sort of condescension that surrounds his take on on the minds and the people within them and like ownership of them and like basically condoning and agreeing with them like being allowed to be bought out and that line between social engineering and and capitalism and socialism and whatnot and like it's it's still tyranny either way there's just like there's some knob that isn't twisted right and that's i think just a disagreement that i have with mateo in in terms of his his point of view on what should or should not have been done in the circumstance especially given the fact that this was quicksilver and others of whom bought it up with wealth that they had beforehand but i don't know it just it kind of rings hollow to me as someone of whom is benefiting from the system I can understand that, but I feel like this goes all the way back to conversation that you and I have had speculating and getting into sort of the in the moment things like we've talked about it a few different times, but it always comes back to Diana and her conversation with Darrow about what would happen with the Reds when they're liberated and the the minds are all they know there's a lot of complications there and I don't, I don't under like, I, I don't know what an alternative would have been like with, with I, the, the liberation of the reds with the, the mass migration out of the mines, there's going to be conflict. And that conflict is by and large inner clan conflict stemming from, the generations of clan infighting and clan rivalries within the minds themselves and coming to light the sort of favorite favoritism that gamma was afforded. Like these are things that are not the fault of the Republic and they're, they're not the fault of the way that this was done. Yes, it was handled poorly, but it was also handled the best that it could have been given their resources and like, What's like, do you just leave them down there in the mines subjugated until you have the the path forward until you have everything set forward? Like that doesn't feel great either. Like, no, I, I think I think we're on different tracks here okay. slightly. So okay. I, I'm I'm with you on that front of like that to me is sort of the Republic's answer to what needed to be done to take the people out of the mines. My point is more that Quicksilver and other silvers bought out those mines to then mine them out as giant companies with robots and other things like that and bought them for a penny 
and then turned a profit, of course, which helped fuel the rising and everything else that was going on there. But were able to buy the mines up and the Reds didn't see all the Reds of whom had maintained them for generations and who had worked for generations hadn't seen a, a red cent from it. It's kind of my point, more or less. Okay. They're the ones who are getting shafted on things that have been generational work. It, it's definitely a difficult thing, but I think that this, to me, this isn't on the Republic. This is on Quicksilver and the people that took advantage of the, the system in the moment to take advantage of people that were displaced. Yes. Okay. I can see that. I struggle to find the connection between that and apologizing for Camp 121. Well, because ultimately, because they didn't have the means, because they were bought out super cheaply, apologizing for 121 rings a little bit hollow, especially when he gets into some of the ideology stuff later. At first, it does, like I said, a little bit. He's obviously also directly apologizing about her and her circumstances of losing her parents. But then later, he doubles down on this idea of like either way, it's tyranny, whether or not it's socialism or social engineering, it's it's tyranny. And and that's where like it, the entire apology rings wrong to me because you don't understand the reason that those things happened. I guess I, that's, I keep that's going really back to I, the, I take fault with. the argument of what's the alternative. Well, the alternative is to make sure that they got paid a fair amount for the property that Quicksilver bought at a cheap dollar. That's the problem. A fair amount for who? Like what I for for the Reds. Okay, imagine that you had a generational property and you were forced off of it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you were the government was able to sell it to a corporation for very cheap. We we do this all the time. I forget what it's called. Eminent domain, right? And so they claim eminent domain and then they sell it and you get very little money when it was instead worth a lot of money, right? That's what happened to the Reds. Kind of. It's a yeah. lot it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, what I'm trying what what I'm trying to pick at here is that I think that Quicksilver <sighs> took advantage of a thing because he does that. That's what he's done forever. That's why he's the wealthiest man in the solar system. And that's that's the qualm. Let me, it, I'll, it's I'll also while you Yep. Getting into Virginia's perspective this week. It's also the only like the only edge that the Republic has right now over any of their adversaries is their helium three production. Right. Again, of which the reds could be profiting off of. Right. That's, that's the problem. So the line that Lyria says is if you know who I am, then you know how annoying it is to have sun industries tech in my head. Your husband cheated millions of reds out of their minds. Mateo responds, no, that was actually democracy in action. Each mine got to vote. Is it our fault that they chose the immediate payout instead of maintaining their ownership? How can we promise freedom and then be the arbiter of people's choices? That is not freedom. That is social engineering. Now, I completely agree while, with that. While there's a semblance of truth to that, there's also the fact that they're uneducated people of whom don't have the the education to make it an educated choice so what are they going to do they could negotiate for a higher price they don't have the education to do that no i i know but in theory you could have someone advocating on their behalf right i yeah sure or or setting some sort of a minimum price there are all kinds of options right but like they're that's 
that is the qualm that I have with this and Lyria has with it. Frankly, it's it's not just it's not just me. Lyria ultimately has a problem with Mateo's perspective here because she sees how they were manipulated out of money and everything and how reds as a color are still held down inadvertently by a system and other people are advantaged by that system. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. This is the longest argument we've gotten in since the dress. <laughs> it's been a minute. It's true. But yeah, I, I guess my my point is not to resolve this necessarily, but I feel like I agree with Lyria that it rings hollow, that there is like obviously an apology and an understanding of like losing your close ones, but not understanding the real reason as to why they died in the first place. Sure, there was clan infighting and that was a majority of the cause, but if if there was more money, could they not have gone and rented apartments? Could they not have broken out into smaller groups? Could there not have been other options? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the question that she begs. And instead, it's like, yeah, but we had the money to buy the mines, so you suffered, dude. So sorry. We didn't want to take your choice away to suffer. That's <laughs> I mean, really reductive, but you understand. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else? Any other thoughts? I don't think so. Okay, cool. There are questions back and forth between the pair that they exchange that are lovely as these reforming low colors swap answers uh, as they play this kind of question game back and forth and play coy with each other. And it it turns from a a very serious conversation into one that still has roots in something serious, but a little bit more playful. And we learn that there's a lot going on in Lyria's head and specifically what's going on. We find out about the psyche, how it was developed by a green and that is really truly is an AI designed to make folks incredibly powerful, practically demigods and able to control a lot of different interfaces all at once to be able to plant themselves like a blue and control legions of ships, but then also be able to control themselves in the moment and not just be linked in that way. There's also a comparison immediately to the green herself and Oppenheimer that is, I think is both fairly apt, of course, and like not wanting to give that power to anyone and timely in an odd way, of course, with with Oppenheimer's release date being so close to this book's release date. But it's also interesting that there are six of these out there in general. So all of these prototypes were kind of unleashed onto the world. Yeah, it's a it's a very cool explanation the connection to oppenheimer as you mentioned is timely and (laughs) kind of fun to contrast it a little bit um Mm -hmm. i'm more than anybody i feel like curious where the other five psyches might be but more so i'm i'm curious if there's any connection somehow directly indirectly or distantly related to Lysander's mind's eye if there's something something like that to it something uh, AI driven and I, I, I don't feel like this is the same as what he has in his head but I could very easily believe that there's something external implanted in his brain to allow him to recall memories like this as opposed to it being a trauma-induced photographic memory basically hmm okay or videographic yeah, memory is that how you would call it maybe i mean prob i i think it's still photographic even if it's longer than just a, a shot right like it's still you still remember the whole process and whatever it was that like happened around that right mm-hmm. so yeah i think either way it'd be photographic probably okay so yeah interesting i hadn't considered 
that the mind's eye could have been or could be a psych. I don't. I, I don't. And I my my gut instinct is that it's not the even. same yeah. tech, but it is kind of serendipitously similarly discovered tech, kind of like the two discoveries of calculus that happened within the same year or so. Sure. Yeah. I, I understand what you're kind of poking at. And that does actually thinking about it a little bit, that does line up too with the forgotten memories, right? Like we remember, we can recall and some of this could just be connected to the pandemonium chair, of course. So this is conspiracy corner for sure. Oh yeah. Not even saying that I strictly agree with this, but if I, if I follow that train of thought for a second, you can see the psyche and especially the sort of questions that are asked of Lyria to repair it in the end. Hey, you have to sacrifice all those memories for power. Would you do that? You can see how maybe little Lysander could have made that choice or Octavia made the choice for him. And so he lost autonomy in that way to be, you know, even if it's not identical to the psych, more powerful. Mm-hmm. And if it's something external, that's way easier to understand how Octavia could have control over what memories are obliterated. Yeah. I mean, the pandemonium chair still answers that question, though, it from does. our understanding. That's but, true. And who's to say that they don't share some kind of lineage together in the right. first place? So, yeah. Interesting. I didn't consider that. I don't know that I fully agree with it. I would throw, if I'm throwing like a conspiracy percentage on it, I'd throw like a solid... 30 30 like there's a chance but i don't i don't feel like that's what it is okay that's i feel a, like it's more of a meditative state than anything that's else a better percentage chance than yeah. most of the conspiracies that i genuinely believe so <laughs> fair, fair enough fair enough very funny okay so i did want to bring back up of course there, there are a number of these that are out there there are clearly some other people that have them. Do you, can you think of anyone else that falls under your radar that you think could have a psych? Atlas. Oh, Atlas is one. Atalantia is another, mm-hmm. frankly, especially given this section and how many secrets she seems to kind of be in tune with. I, 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 I mean, the secret, the the big one, is Lysander knowing about his parents. It feels like there's some external information source feeding her. So if it's not Adelante, they did say herself, that it's like quasi, yeah, hmm? quasi omniscience. So there is right, not exactly not total, but like yeah, not total, but being able to to break down the information there. Like I, I could see her having. Mm-hmm. Either a very, very close advisor that has the same sort of technology or her herself, one of the two. My very first thought, as far as thinking about this, just in this moment, I I hadn't really put any thought to it before now. I feel like if anyone does in the story so far, I feel like Xenophon is the one that strikes me in particular as the the white that we feel like was in atlas's service from dark age strikes me as a man equipped yeah potentially he just seems so with it prepared and well balanced and knows how to address everything and everyone so well not in like a 
not in a super standout way where it feels like it doesn't fit the plot, but it does feel like there's just something there that's a little bit more than standard equipment, if that makes sense. It does. Cool. Yeah. No, I I think I get that on this one. So getting to Lyria's choice here, and I know that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this because we generally spend a lot of time talking about choices. And we also we're doing this one live and we had a question in the chat that kind of surrounds this. So we'll we'll tackle that in kind of two parts here. But what do you make of her ultimate decision to remove the psyche as she refuses to take power as power is youth, useless to her without being able to specifically help and remember the people that she loves and lost and that their sacrifice matters and that remembering them is a key component of that to the decision? I am very, very conflicted about this. Because this feels like 100% Lyria. Like, this is a Lyria answer, but this is a Lyria from Iron Gold answer. And hmm. I feel like this backtracks. Need clarification there. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. Backtracks and backslides against some of the progress that she's made, or not progress, but the progression the the sort of forward momentum of her character through dark age and becoming less strictly emotional and sentimental and like she she always will be very strongly sentimental but she's starting to or was starting to be able to see more perspectives and understand sacrifices that need to be made and can be made in order for the betterment in in order to better her people and the people that she loves so i i would have expected that this would have been more conflicting for her and a little bit of a slower decision i think her saying no right away is indicative of her character in iron gold and i feel like hmm. the path that we've seen her on and the things that she's learned and the scope of the world that she's been a part of has expanded to the point where i would have expected her to be conflicted but ultimately say yes as a sacrifice to ensure the betterment of Liam and of the people that she loves and as an insurance to be able to find her quarries, her friends, and save them. And like it would have been a heavy decision, but it would have been a logical decision like she she seemed to have been on a path from a very emotional to a very logical person and this feels like hmm. a jump backwards towards the emotional i'm not saying that's a worse decision i'm just saying that she was moving towards the more logical side of the decision-making tree. And this feels like a jump away from that into what she was as an emotional decision-maker. Okay. So, so I can understand that. I guess I never viewed her arc as one in which it was a switch from emotional to logical. So much. It was a switch from 
family to loneliness to understanding other people and that other people can be family right i I never saw that as a jump to logic she's always been in my head emotional matter of fact even when the psyche originally implants itself you know the the parasite whichever however we want to refer to it she freaks out and is very she's afraid of like losing autonomy in these different moments when people all of a sudden are rendered in pieces and and whatnot as it protects her she doesn't, but, but she feels empowered. I, I, I and then feel there's like the question, autonomy is is disconnected from your source of decision making. Like it, it removes decision making. She was worried that she was losing her humanity in general, which, yeah. in argument, that's what this would that, be. That's that is also what this would be. Yeah. Um, so yeah. understanding that, but I do, I don't see that as the same as fighting against logic so i break this down in a little bit of a different way right i break this down as lyria seeing that there are two options there's one in which i take power to beat the things and there's one in which i take i mean as as maybe cheesy as this might sound there's there's the power path which is the path that in my head darrow has taken it's the path to to break the thing that exists and and to shatter it or there's the power and and darrow didn't have to make this exact choice for the record so it doesn't the parallel doesn't perfectly work between the two of them but lyria instead is making an argument that the power to break doesn't matter if you don't remember what you're breaking for or what you're doing and so she's not willing to sacrifice remembering why she's doing these things for that because living for more for her is also living for the memory of those people. That's the only reason she would yeah. do it in the first place. She's not she's not fighting necessarily to change all of society. At at the best, what she's trying to do is preserve Liam. Like that's her give him the best world. Right? Like that's her whole right. goal. And I feel like if she had asked for 30 minutes in a hollow cube, she could have <laughs> accomplished both interesting i i i understand i disagree i okay. i think that like she wouldn't have it's it's the real tangible memories but maybe maybe the pandemonium chair could have done something and preserve the memories or maybe any of the other technologies so to me this gets into mo one of our patrons questions while we're doing this live do we think pierce brown need to cut down some storylines and that this was sort of an easy out so a in general as as far as I approach literature, I try to approach the stories and the characters where they're at and not sort of the meta text of things in that sort of context as often as like judging a character's decision. But we'll, we'll start there. PJ, do you feel like this was an easy out or do you view it like that? I feel like this is the more if Lyria's perspective continues. I feel like this is more difficult to write. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> From the yeah. writer's perspective, like, it's easy to write a superhero. Yeah, exactly. It's easy to write mm-hmm. somebody that has near unlimited knowledge. So, but from like a, a world building perspective, sometimes it could be difficult to like, oh yeah, God, she's yeah. so powerful, and make that yeah. interesting too can also be tough. So. Right. But like, I, I I feel like this was a challenge. I, I won't know until we get more deeply into yeah. it. And assuming that this decision making goes the way that it is presenting right now, as opposed to something 
interrupting the surgery and like, oh, no, our only option is to kill Lyria or enable the full functionality of Figment because we're under siege. Like, short of something like that, this this feels like limiting Lyria to a human's perspective is more difficult to write and make interesting and, and maintain primary perspective status than an all seeing, all knowing, all understanding AI that kind of has Lyria's prefrontal, prefrontal cortex attached to it. So I don't, I don't see it as a fallback, but I also don't have the luxury of understanding the rest of the story to uh, make that call. Yeah. And I, I think even addressing it from a sort of, I, I like that. I like that opinion. It's not fully the way that I think about it, but I do actually as a, as a different take on sort of the similar thing from, from a larger perspective, I don't feel like it's that Pierce Brown had so many plot lines spiraling out of dark age, right? That there were so many that he just had to like cut some down to make it work or function. I think it's more that these feel like real genuine character choices. And from a sort of meta textual level, which is where I think that this goes, he's using Lyria and Darrow against each other to pin reds in similar, although not identical situations to say something about the way that power or the lack of power can be used to lead or be a part of a rebellion. So I I feel like that's what he's going for. And so her turning away from the power as ill-defined as it may be is what he's trying to say in some, in some grander context with the two as characters, if that tracks. So yeah, I I feel like, and that's, that's meta text, right? Like that's extracting ourselves and being, you know, we, we try not to be critics in the immediate moment of the text that, of course, sometimes breaks through and comes through otherwise. But like that's sort of my take on where where that plot line feels like his intention is or lies. And so as such, the parasite is no longer relevant to her storyline, even though it may be relevant in the wider world. If this were a Brandon Sanderson book, some other character would have picked it up. We'd explore it a little bit more. <laughs> and we'd, we'd get to know it fully. That way we could be like, oh, yeah, okay. so if she would have taken it, it could have been this. But, you know, sometimes stories drop those things because they aren't actually relevant or important from a a meta composition side of things. And so I I feel like a lot of people have put a lot of weight on this decision in that way in the community. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think that he made the choice that the character was going to make naturally in the moment. Now, I do think my conspiracy brain, of which PJ did poke at here a little bit, I do believe in some way, shape, or form, that we may see a different figment or psyche emerge from a different character. I don't know, though. We'll see. Yeah. Um, And that is so much more speculation than I normally put into an episode. I'm going to just add another, like, shake up of it. I think she's wrong. I think think she should have said yes. I mean, it's fine to disagree with her. And I also so desperately and maybe this is my propensity as a fan of hard hard fantasy and by extension hard sci-fi like i I just want the perspective of figment itself like i i I so badly want to like but we kind of got that in the the couple of dark age chapters really not not we got a little bit we got a taste we we got 
interaction it, with, it, but we didn't we didn't get like inner monologue of a this AI. B, a and B. Yeah. I but what it says and what it thinks and feels are two different things. That's fair. That's fair. There's an entire series that I can recommend you about in it that I think would would feed your your instinct there. I will read a little them. trilogy of books. Yeah. yeah. When you have spare time after you read Salem's Lot, you have to read Salem's Lot. Yeah. Like now we have to record that for October. I'll, um, I'll, I'll put it on. I was going to say this motherfucker, but I don't know where my Kindle is. So <laughs> it's fine. I we'll thought do it was it on my desk, but it's cool. Yeah. I, I definitely understand. I, I feel like I knew that this was going to be the chapter that we were going to have or the set of chapters that we were probably going to have longer conversations about. Yeah, you found it. You found the motherfucker. Man, I, I feel like this is to me, this is validation of Lyria before this moment and before Figment and like that she can be something else. I don't know. I'm just I'm, mm-hmm. that she she gets to choose. And I think that that's. That's something that sometimes can be just taken away from authors, I think, just to do the cool thing as opposed to do the right thing for the character. That is one of the traits that I think, you know, people people often compare or say, you know, shorthand for Red Rising is Game of Thrones in space. But it's one of the things to me that Martin does best is making characters, agencies, agency and decisions feel real for the characters. And this feels like the right decision for Lyria entirely. Yeah. As a character. Now, you could disagree with it, though. I mean, like, I know you would do something different. You'd be I like, mean, fuck yeah, I, I'm the I heavy think, metal god, right? Like, Well, I, I think it was the right decision for the character if we hadn't seen her through Dark Age. I, I disagree I, with that. I, I just, she I, dislikes I like what she happened. became more understanding of sacrifice. But just... Just because she's more understanding of sacrifice doesn't mean that she chooses not to remember what was sacrificed, right? Like, this is her choosing to lose Ephraim as, like, a memory. And this is her choosing and, like, just sacrificing those memories for power, right? When she believes that she can be powerful without it. I don't know. Yeah, but her goal is still to benefit the people that she loves, like that's her ultimate breaking society. Hmm? She's, she's not the one that's going to like break the back of society. You know what I mean? Like she's not, she could be, but she doesn't need to be, but that would make things so much easier. Would it? Yeah. I don't know. It would. I don't know that it would. And I don't know that it's also everyone's responsibility to be the leader of a rebellion. You know what I mean? That's not, but she's in the position where she could have been. But that's how you get. A, I, I guess that's that's where my brain goes is like if everyone believes that they're the leader of the rebels, then everyone <laughs> then no one is the rebels and we're all just spitting on each other. <laughs> like, yeah, but not everyone is the, is in that position. She is. All right. I think a lot of good could have come utilitarianly from her saying yes. I think so, too. Hey, I'm not. Again, I'm not dissuading that argument. I think that there could have been good that would have came. But sometimes it's not about the it's there's the big picture of good and the little picture of good. Sometimes I, I think keeping there is the a little things tangibly in large benefit that could have been bestowed upon the Republic by her saying yes. 
Yeah, I, I was just going to draw a comparison back to the, the mines thing. So we're cool with the entire experience of the camps because we have helium production at an all-time high. Like, we're good with that. Shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. At an all-time <laughs> high without slaves. Yeah, that seems like a pretty great benefit. Yeah, yeah, but with the wrong people. Benefit. That's that's the... The, the benefit qualm. is the anyway. republic. The All of the production the goes to the republic. Like this is I, this is a socialist dream somehow within a but capitalist it's, but it's system. Not because S- fucking somehow, like both of those ideologies are at it. But someone still here. loses. That's that's also not necessarily true. There's only one person that purchases it, which is why, right? So it's not socialist. It's it's there's a single consumer, <laughs> and that one consumer is buying it from Sun Industries. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Mo. I appreciate it. I'm gonna take this back up in the moment. <laughs> it's it's not socialist. It is oligarchical, <laughs> if anything. Yeah, fair enough. But regardless, <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that we have this argument. I'm glad that we have the conversation about it. I think that it is something that will be oft debated until the arc is resolved. And I think that it it is tough to say. Again, we haven't done a whole lot of series that haven't had their final books out to to discuss. We've done one other series before that didn't end as well, but. Yeah, I, I expect more to come, and obviously the story isn't over here. So to extract and move ourselves a little bit forward here, there are only a couple of things left. But there's Charlotte, which is this nice giant spider fiction, which is obviously a reference to Charlotte's Web as it creeps out of the ceiling as this dark orb and is going to drill a hole in Lyria's brain, and she freaks out quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know. What would you think of Charlotte in, in that whole situation this child is great i don't know i i i found it a lot of fun to make a an arachnid-esque sentinel have a have a cute name and (laughs) be reminiscent of a i mean like this is one of those literature connections. Like, th- there's a few of them scattered throughout the story that are like very clearly like most of the literature that is referenced within this series is deep divey and niche. But there's there's a few here and there that are very everyone understands what they're talking about, and it's fun. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This this is a good one, I think, especially from Mateo to be like, I named her Charlotte after one of my favorite books. And that's just like, a oh, of course, of yeah. course. And that also makes sense in the way that drawing the parallel that like Mateo is sort of nurturing this group of people potentially or this is is a nurturer in a system. So, yeah, there's a lot there. So about Lyria's decision, I want to read the quote because I do appreciate it greatly from Matteo here before we round out the chapter. In life, it is very tempting to forget the past, to try and make a perfect future. But the past and the pain we have endured, they make us who we are. Without my past, my pain, I would not be who I am. I forgot that. I remember it now very clearly, thanks to you. I pretty greatly appreciate this quote. There's still a lingering caution that I have about Mateo and this seemingly 
no strings attached hospitality but this lends some credibility to that hospitality and reasoning behind it there i mean there there's still caution but i'm more likely to take mateo's word for it i guess after the speech mm. yeah i i think that it lends him credibility and i think that it reminds us of that original mateo to me from way back when it it feels sort of warm and homey in a in a way that we haven't seen from that character in a very long time all right so that brings us to chapter 14 the armor of love I love how this chapter starts as Virginia receives the message and relays that she would so much rather speak clearly and directly, but she understands that her responsibility to speak eloquently is so important to the for the fragile stability of the of the republic. You were going to say society, weren't you? Oh, I almost did. I almost did. <laughs> I think especially recently, there's been such a lack of decorum around speech and language and written word and all of these different things that it, it just drives me nuts personally. And this highlighted that it's it's not that honesty isn't appreciated, but that we've lost the ability in some way, I think, conventionally to inspire and clearly communicate ideals and ideas through language. It's all become buried in so much noise where the only thing that matters is the buzz. That's a good point. And it, it, this is going off on a tangent, I think, unconnected. Ah, not unconnected, but mostly disconnected from the story that we're reading. But I feel like a lot of that has to do with how media and how, how information is consumed now. Like I can't remember the last. I would say time information, media, and information are different. They are. But, They're very different. Yeah, but they feed into each other. Like even even through the lens of of the news, I can't remember remember right. the last time I saw a full speech. I see snippets. I see like the very small bits of text. So. In order to not be misconstrued, speech has been kind of condensed and simplified and made and written in, in such a way that it's hard to take things as out of context as as things could have been. So you don't get the eloquence and you don't get the like well thought and 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 well rehearsed speeches of the past that frankly are very missed within our political society. Yeah. And I mean to, to remove that a little bit and extract it from politics immediately, but I do agree with you. I, I definitely don't disagree there. There's the old, the old Hamlet quote, right? Which is that brevity is the soul of wit, right? And so there is something to be said about something that's short and that gives you an impactful message, but it's different when you take something short and then extract a different thing from it, or you're twisting something else out of it. And so that's when, you know, you're taking something that's longer and intended to be consumed in full format and then condensing it down to the one line that removes all context. So, you know, brevity is good when it's intended to be brief these days, you know, it's, it's all out of context. In, right. in so many different ways, which is also why Virginia in the moment feels the need to be like, hey, I got to be verbose. I got to inspire. I got to do more than just the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
anyway, I just, I, this tangent, you know, it's just, it's, man, I love language. (laughs) But then we move on to something that is very painful, I think. And that is that Virginia explains clear as day to us that the Reaper isn't hers, that Darrow is. They shout for a god while I carry a holonos inside me, the size of a man. And that hurts so bad. I feel so much pain for Virginia in this moment as she points to something that we've been pointing to. And I feel, PJ, I feel so validated that there is this distinct separation in this book. You know, one of my concerns with our coverage of Red Rising was that I was going to take, especially when we got into the sequel trilogy, that I was going to take a position that was so outlandish that it was never going to work. And this separation of Darrow and the Reaper was something that I was like, that's got to be what he's going for. And the, this book just, it it does it. It did the thing. I, I, I just, ah, it's so good. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, I was concerned. I was concerned that we would have the wrong take in some way, shape, or form. I like that we seem to have the right take, but I dislike that you feel good about being right. So... I don't know how to feel right now. What? <laughs> but I feel bad for Virginia because she realizes that, right? Like she realizes that we were right and that this weird podcast mm-hmm. was correct, right? Yeah. Like she's super, yeah, definitely listens to the show, checks in. Yeah. She's been checking in. Through this section, we get some fun or not fun progression from Dark Age. In that book, she was very intentionally stoic and hardened against Darrow's exploits and his campaign and his positioning as a military leader on a different planet and and absent, not absent, absent as a father and as a husband and all of that that had to be reckoned with. It's not to say that she wasn't emotional. On a personal level, but she she mm. was very intentional about her sort of sectioning off of that emotion and making sure her decision making was strictly in the same way that Darrow's was in in the whatever's best for the Republic. So it, it's nice to see this sort of separation or this progression through time and through distance and and through obfuscation of understanding whether or not Darrow's alive. It's internal. Like her her cracks in that and I, I don't I I don't like calling them cracks, but her, her emotion shining through is internal. But it is nice to see her be a human and and miss her husband and yes, she did through Dark Age, but this feels a lot more emotional than it did throughout the, that entire book. Yeah, it's it's weird. It, it, there's like this surge and it, it might have more to do with the other perspectives around her. And we're like extracting that a little bit because of the, the sort of way that she's subsumed by that story a couple of different times. But this does feel more emotional. And she like repeats the the line of like, I told my husband to endure, but now I have to endure. And and this is, you know, it's it's a turning of everything back towards her so i i totally agree with you that like she she feels that and she resonates and it's it's a deeper connection and i think that it's safe i i like 
I like you skirted away from cracks and the light shining through, but I, I do feel like there is something there to that sort of perspective on the whole. Not that like her love or the foundation of that love is cracking, but that there is that she feels stress and pressure because he's not there to relieve it or be there with her. That's significant for sure. Oh man. And it is, it is a tough, tough thing that she shoulders for the entire society, the entire section. So move from there to her sharing war council with Cavax and giving us a report on the Republic and Phobos, the birthplace of Darrow's public return in Morningstar. And in many ways, the public rising of the rebellion itself has transformed from a prison moon with these stacked cells that were clear and very clearly just terrible into the orbital defense grid of Mars. Truly, we've earned justice for Phobos as this slightly larger than New York City and Long Island moon has risen itself, resurrected as something more than what it was before. Hashtag justice for Phobos has been accomplished, I think. I cannot (laughs) believe. I, like, in the moment when I was reading this, I was traveling at some point along the line, and I I think it was in the airport and I or I was in an airplane and I just like fist bumped like right as I was sitting in my chair. I just said, fuck yes, justice for Phobos. <laughs> and I got so excited about about this stupid little meme that we created and the fact that it became a little bit more than that. So mm-hmm. it was neat. Yeah. It is kind of nice to get a precursor to the conversation about the logistics of attacking Mars between Lysander and Atalantia and atlas referencing phobos as like a major deterrent for taking a planet (laughs) yeah absolutely it is i mean and again you mentioned this right at the top right like this is you think that phobos is the rampart and in many ways the later chapters point to it being the rampart of mars so this is sort of the defense to stand on right we'll see where that goes yeah. They, of course, are chatting and they continue to chat. And <laughs> the the report that Cavax delivers is insubstantial enough that she turns to him and says, this could have been done over comms. And I found that so like it's the perfect like this should have been an email. And I just I, you know, I, I knew that it was an intended meme. I knew what Pierce Brown was going for. It was very clearly in the same realm of by Felicia in Morningstar, but it was still so good. It hit me in the gut, especially from Virginia's perspective, because you have to imagine the number of things that she's like, that could have been a fucking, it could have been overcoms. But it does set up the coming discussion as they both head to visit PAX at the formerly Blue Academy, but now just the sort of Pilots Academy, the Dark Star Conservatory. What do you make of the technique of fully separating the child from the family and what it meet and what that means for PAX? As far as that goes, in addition to like this very otherworldly building that we find ourselves outside of. So addressing the separation thing first, this is something that was done with Spartans, wasn't it? Or I, I don't know how historically accurate that was, but as as far as they have been represented in literature, um, Spartans were kind of separated from an early age and trained as warriors. Funny enough, we talked about the Crypteria, right? We talked about the Crypteria, obviously. Mm -hmm. Crypteria, right? Crypteria? Crypteria? I thought it was 
Ia. It might be Ia. I, I, I don't remember. Of the Rim, regardless. Yeah. The, the group from the Rim, the spies, and the relation to Spartan society. And this is an example of that. But it's also rumored and so shrouded and stuff that it's not clear if that actually happened to the degree that it was or if it was just maybe a couple of offshoot cases that were sensationalized. Mike Cole has a number of great books on sort of rewrite writing Spartan history in a way that is not, is no longer representative of like popular media, like 300 and correcting a lot of those Spartan myths as the sort of super vainglorious warriors that we all assume them to be comparatively. They were, they did have a more vicious culture than a lot of Greeks, but not as vicious as it was ever depicted. So not nearly Uh, lots, lots of myths around Greece for that reason. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's unclear on some of these things. There are some examples like the Crypteria that are a little bit more mysterious, but unclear, but nonetheless, it's reminiscent of that portrayal in media. So Mm -hmm. the Academy itself is fucking dripping with Satanist or the satanic iconography. In what way? I was so, I'm so curious. Okay. So please explain. Dark Star. Right. As a name, but also the as above, so below. Yeah. As above, so below is used in a lot of things, but I understand. But I'm pretty sure it's primarily connected to Satanism. Well, I think it was co-opted because it's, it is originally a a Parisian thing to my recollection. Okay. what else? I feel like there was something with the flag of Trident and Planet, but I can't remember exactly what I'm connecting that to. Yeah. But yeah, so- given, given given even the first two, even Dark Star and As Above, So Below, I was surprised that there was no commentary on it from Virginia about it just understanding her like relationship with history and and academia i would have i would have thought there'd be some sort of remark on it it is definitely a hmm, how do i say this it has definitely been used in multiple cultures it's not a singular sort of phrase it was co-opted by the satanic movement a long time ago, especially in its portrayal of specifically, and this isn't necessarily satanic by any means, but starting off in 1909 with the magician card from a tarot deck, it was one of the first to feature the phrase depicted in English at the very least as it was taken. But originally it's, it's old Latin Arabic actually. So yeah, I mean the, the phrase has been used in a number of different languages, uh, Arabic, Latin, as mentioned, uh, and has kind of moved through a number of different circles over the years. But the sort of text, as it seems, is not necessarily originally satanic in origin. But I appreciate all the different notes because I didn't pick up on those things. I read it as more a symptom of sort of Orion's austere and sort of, hmm, how do I say this? stoic but forceful nature so i read it as like it turning against but also embracing blue culture okay. so like it's parts of blue and parts of like what needed to happen to like make the new pilots happen hmm. so i could get behind that yeah yeah nonetheless 
the building itself is this giant orb that reaches out of the ground. A, there's that new Vegas building that is literally this. I don't know <laughs> if you've seen any images of that, but there's the giant orb. Yeah. Have you not? Or have I have. You? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, all right. I never know with you in pop culture. I just have well, to okay. you know, take a moment. I, I was thinking new Vegas, like Fallout New Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to the new Las Vegas building. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, no. I'm thinking. I'm thinking the new Las Vegas building, the giant orb, whatever it's called, the sphere, mm. and that. But like them training inside and it being massive and having flying ships, I imagine something akin to Ender's Game, as far as what they're doing on the inside. Yeah, but totally. As they move through those things, and per the point of discussion that we've been having on the side here and during breaks, if you want to give me a novella. Give me a Pax novella now. Like, I want I want one so bad. I want yeah. Pax back in my story so fucking bad. I mean, I could even... An exceptional blue that's one of Pax's close... Could be like, Char. Students. Yeah. No, like, like classmates. Oh, okay. Like yeah. that... It, it could be kind of cool to see Pax from a less elevated perspective. Right. Yeah. As opposed to Entirely. from himself. I mean, I'd love to see Pax's perspective too. Don't get me wrong, but I feel greedy asking for that. <laughs> I don't know. Right. There's this other side of this too that I want to bring up, which is the quote that she says of that is just sort of subsuming her in this moment, which is my child will be a warrior. And she kind of acknowledges the fact that despite all of their attempts to turn him away, to make him studious, to make him all of these other things, the the demands of life have driven him down that path of becoming something else, something more, but something else than what they wanted. And I, I feel like Pax's understanding and and aware of the societal pressure that was placed on him, despite the desire to be out of the spotlight by his parents he he talks about symbolism and and people needing symbols and he is like it or not one of those symbols that the people need to hold in high regard so i i think he is uh very aware of the uh the weight of his birth and of his parented station in his station and it feels very stereotypical to follow somebody who pushes against that weight and that station to the point where it's kind of it's kind of strangely refreshing to have a perspective of somebody that's like totally understanding and accepting of that station yeah i mean to not have someone go no you shouldn't do that and like be the mother in the moment as opposed to understanding as the mother i I think that that's that is an incredible step of understanding from virginia of the reality of what's happening it doesn't hurt that we're past the point of her having any sort of input on the matter but you know it's Mm -hmm. a it's a foregone conclusion at this point obviously right yeah tough so we get a lot of details in this moment as well on the history of the past couple of years, as well as how Virginia felt running away in the moment in between Golden Sun and Morning Star, having packs. 
and everything that happened there with keeping him secret. And this is one of those moments that leaves me so desirous of whatever that TV show will be to witness these small expansions of the story that will only be a couple of minutes, but will just give us this peek into these other worlds and other pockets of existence that I want so badly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Outside of the POV. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For sure. Like, <laughs> uh, because we were trapped in Darrow's POV, we missed out on so much. Which is a good thing and a bad thing, but you know, as it goes. But and that goes as well for. Oh, go ahead. Oh, just a, an adaptation allows for that expansion in a limited way of those perspectives. Less strict about it, so we can see something that we want to. Yeah, most definitely. And one hopes, and I assume we'll see some of those things, but another great example is what happens here with the story of this green and rooting out the political corruption among Virginia's ranks, right? So this like expands itself in some ways in this story, as well as the other green that we hear about later in Lysander's perspective. There are just so many like small things that I can see in almost like Last of Us opening shots where we get a little bit more of the world in a quick cutaway. As a cold open. So I don't know. I just want, I want more. I want all of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's this green that's been rooting out the political corruption among Virginia's ranks. I can't help but wonder if these were threads in that infamous 1.2 million word draft that he said that he wrote and whether or not, you know, we would have seen some of these things unfold and untangle. But Regardless, I think without considering that there is a discussion with Cavax here that I think warrants more than mentioning. What do you make of his suspicion and Virginia's reluctance to name her source of information in the moment with him? I mean, I've Who been doing. Tell, do you guess? Especially I've been with, doing my best to try to suss that out, figure out mm-hmm. on my own. Um, my initial thought. Especially given the, like, imagine the worst thing and you're right kind of comment is that she's got, she's, she's captured Abominatrius and goopified his brain and is using, whether or not it's actual information or just understanding the logic of the syndicate. And Mm -hmm. their connections to the society, if there are any direct connections to sort of sniff out the moles, I don't know, something like that or something like the obsidians. It's not entirely clear who these traders are working for. It could be for the obsidian and maybe she, despite her conversation with Pax, has a an open conversation and outside of the law relationship with Valdir and is able to extract information that way. I, I I really don't know. I feel like it's something like that, either a direct connection to the Obsidian who have uh, fractured from the, Repu- the Republic or a direct connection to the Syndicate, be it Abominadrius or a lower but still high-ranking official of that uh, team. I don't know. Okay. I totally get that, and that is a great 
series of guesses and I don't I'm not going to make you like narrow down on which one you think is right by any stretch but I will you know, if you like I'll, I'll, I'll bet oh, some okay. drinks what's on your it? number one yeah right number one is wait 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 you, you get one bet I get one I, bet I don't know where you came I up with one. number one no I, number one being my bet because right. I've, I've, I've got a lot of ways that it could go I think it's abominadrious okay because it hasn't been mentioned. I feel like that's Do you want me to be specific more... to it hasn't been mentioned or he hasn't been mentioned? Doesn't matter to me. It's just clarifying. Yeah. I guess that needs to be clarified. I mean, I, I don't think it does. It was more just your <laughs> phrasing. No, I know. I just meant the the syndicate other than the auction hasn't been a hasn't a taken force. any spotlight of this yeah. book so far. Yeah, definitely get it. There's a quote here from Cavax that I absolutely adore that I need to highlight. Um, he, he says of her in this moment and shortly thereafter sharing all of these things and her looking downtrodden and broken. He says, daughter, you are my heart. I trust it like I trust the vaulting sky. I look up and there it is. Different shades, perhaps, but always there. Always true. Oh, I'm so sad. I love Cavax. Cavax was, is, and always will be my favorite character of this series. I, I fucking love Cavax. Your favorite character? Your number th- one? My number one. I oh, think right. that's been pretty consistent. It. I think, I, I don't know if I've ever yeah. not had him in in the time that he has existed in the story. I don't think he's not been my favorite. Yeah, I would say he's never been outside of your top two, at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably probably yeah. true. Yeah. You've had flashes with other characters in different moments, but no love story has been as consistent as yours mm-hmm. with Cavax. So I'll give that to you. <laughs> I mean, he even makes comments about they make comments about jelly beans. They talk about all this fun stuff that is very Cavax centered inside of this chapter. But finally making it back to Pax. What do you make of the boy rapidly becoming a warrior and a pilot? How about his opinions about Valdir and Obsidian and about the Obsidian and Cephi's rebellion? And maybe his opinion of Quicksilver? There's a fuck ton here as far as uh, Pax goes. And man, I knew that this was going to be a long episode, but I didn't anticipate it being a four hour episode. <laughs> and we're maybe encroaching in the four and a th- half I territory by happen. the time we're going to be done. Yeah, we're Jesus not, not quite halfway through the the section yet and we've been recording for almost three hours it's fine. pax is level-headed we're good especially for his age but despite his age is very very level-headed and i'm not surprised about that giving his upbringing as far as valdir goes i get the impression that this is an argument that pax and virginia have not about valdir and not about the specifics of the case, but about how the Republic goes about dealing with complicated situations in general. And I feel like Virginia agrees with Pax, but given her station as the sovereign and as a representative of the Republic, has to hold the opinion that uh valdir must 
be tried or or held accountable for the transgressions against the republic despite the intentions and the help that they've received from from value so like it's it's complicated and this is a sparring match and a a back and forth between mother and son the structure of government that they find themselves in as opposed to the actual transgressions of the person that they're arguing about. Okay. I I can definitely understand that as far as the, the sort of conversation goes. And definitely from the political side of things, I guess the only thing that I like internally push back against a little bit with that is that it feels like Virginia also in that moment absolves herself of anything else, of any other take. And that's sort of the one thing that I. But that has any other to be opinion. the case. It's, she, it's the public opinion versus the private opinion, right? Which is the thing. <laughs> it's the voice that she fights with all the time, I think. So I, I definitely I'm not disagreeing with you holistically. And I think. I, I think the only situations where we see that bleed. A little bit is when it's dealing with her own family. Within, when it's dealing with Pax or when it's dealing with Darrow is when she allows her, uh, okay. herself to be it allows her conflicted sure. mm-hmm. between what the sovereign says and what she feels. And when it's not her own family and not directly affecting the people that she deeply, deeply unapologetic, unapologetically loves, then she cuts herself off of it. She takes the sovereign stance because she has to, because otherwise there's just too much complication and it's a slippery slope into dictatorhood if she wants to try to make exceptions and and leverage her position as sovereign into a more authoritarian position based on her sense of morality. So I, I I feel like she allows herself to be conflicted when it's directly related to her family, but um, even when she's talking and 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 sparring with Pax, she cuts her her personal sense off and is the sovereign in that sense. Okay, I I definitely get it. I definitely understand and can consign myself to your feelings that you have there i think the only breaking point that i have is at the very beginning she has this degree of what's the like emotionally honest thing to do versus what do i need to do and that line is pushed towards doing the right thing as a sovereign not the right thing for the for society not society Hmm. Cut, cut cut doing the right thing for the republic more often than not and sometimes that means pushing back against just doing the right thing in the moment which is the difference between her and darrow fundamentally right like darrow will do the right thing to make the situation happen the way that it needs to and she is okay within my strict guidelines in my tower defense game i have to follow the path i can't build outside of the path how do i make it work so there's an analogy for anyone born playing flash games in the <laughs> early 2000s specifically Bloons good for you exists. if you get it 
Yeah, I play balloons on every plane ride. For the record, I pop Dude. open balloons on my phone every time I I'm on a plane. It. I should get it. Dude, it is every time it's so much fun. It's still so good. We're gonna we're gonna just keep that there. But uh, yeah, I play balloons every time I'm on a plane. I'm gonna play it tomorrow at five in the morning <laughs> when I'm on the plane. T minus. Oh god, <laughs> it's so close. Seven hours <laughs> until I have to wake up to be on a plane. So regardless we're not halfway through breaking, this episode oh no we're, we're over halfway <laughs> thankfully thank god i know that there are three more chapters but thankfully they're a little bit more condensed in ways mm. that will make this easier yep. but the breaking point for me in this chapter is how much pax understands both his father and his mother in holistically like entirely he gets them he speaks back the line of people need symbols and it is entirely and absolutely heartbreaking as his childhood has been broken and has forced him to live a life that neither of his parents truly wanted for him he also says i think if love is anything it is truth if life is anything it is struggle and there is just this there's this loss of innocence that i feel with no other character more strongly than i felt with pax even though we only get this brief flash of him in the moment, it it hurts. Yeah, fundamentally, and I I feel like loss of innocence, while maybe technically correct, feels more. He has experienced trauma. He has experienced weight behind or beyond his age. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. All of it's heavy. And we, we talked about this a little bit. I brought it up before him, him feeling like a symbol. And despite what he wants, he's going to be seen that way. So he needs to act like it. I do appreciate this conversation about life and struggle as a comparison or a, a, as a connection to the previous Lyria chapter with Matteo talking about life and struggle and suffering mm-hmm. and and what it means so it's even more powerful in its positioning connected to the previous chapter than it would have been alone but it's still very very powerful on its own yeah i i think if you throw in the context of what we're talking about of like the dream of reds is a life of struggle especially like you're speaking to like it lends an entirely different idea about what Pax believes his life is fundamentally. And as such, I mean, it's, oh man, it's brutal. It's, it's tough to view anything different than the lens with which through he views the world and understanding him fundamentally. And then as such being the parent to that person, that boy, that man, that teen, and trying to wrap your head around this idea of, hey, you are the child of leaders and you see that and strive to be more, to feel like you have to fill that role of responsibility and you lost that sort of childhood delusion in, in a positive way. It's not, it's not a bad thing to be deluded all the time, but that, that sort of childhood delusion of being able to just sit in your garage and toil away to bike and make this thing your own and – that's where I, I cite the loss of innocence. That's what I think Virginia mm-hmm. feels pain from, okay. if that makes sense. Not it that does. he hasn't experienced other sort of fundamental trauma or other things that haven't changed him, but like that in particular, the sort of earnest delusion is, is what gets me. That makes sense. 
Oh, man. Fuck. <laughs> this chapter hurts so bad. And then they split and my heart melts as I read Virginia's thoughts. I'm writing this in the moment as I was going through the notes on a plane. And I literally you call it the stress of the week and call it whatever it was. But yesterday I was crying as I wrote it and I as I reread it and I typed it all out. And it was I have more reasons to fight than they do. My armor is love. And what a fucking lovely note to end the chapter on. Yeah. And I mean, pairing that with the little conversation before they part ways, the I greeted you at, or we, you greeted me as your sovereign. And she doesn't even get through the question of, will you say farewell as my, or as, as my son or however, however she wanted to say it. She yeah. gets a big hug and it's great and it's happy and I loved it. It's adorable. It's so sad, but also so happy. And, you know, it's it's a good moment. It's a good mm-hmm. moment on the whole for Bax. She should be afforded some <laughs> special conditions you know, as I sovereign, mean, right? Does Virginia... <laughs> the son uh, or the daughter of Augustus really deserve anything. Yeah, no, she deserves the world. That was totally a bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that, we move into chapter 15, Lysander earth. So we switch over to Lysander for the rest of the week and we hop right into his perspective as he runs into his brother and old friend Ajax. Ajax barbs Lysander frequently during their exchanges, but Lysander is, I think, predominantly honest with Ajax by comparison, whereas Ajax feels a lot more reserved in the moment. What did you read between the two? This relationship is pretty difficult for me to really like completely understand. <laughs> it they feels both like they're on. Well, well, yeah, they both. Yeah, <laughs> are they are they both her nephews, or is, is so, Ajax? Ajax is Ajax is the only actual nephew. <laughs> but okay, there. Yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> Either way, there there's this sense that distance like physical separation and time separation have uh sort of smoothed out some of that animosity uh but sure. ajax is stubborn and proud and the idea of outright burying the hatchet is pretty much off the table for him in general for anybody i feel like maybe i'm off base but that's kind of the vibe that i got throughout this section and I, I feel like that's backed up in the next couple of chapters. So that's I don't know. so interesting. So, yeah, I, I think that Lysander is open to bearing the hatchet, but but Ajax is the one who's afraid of that even being a possibility or doesn't think it is because he's so mistreated. I guess I, I'm, I'm looking at yeah. this from Ajax perspective in that, like, sure. he seems like he's conflicted. He wants okay. to entirely embrace Lysander and like, just kind of try to forget the idea that he's tried to kill him, tried to kill Lysander a couple of times. But his pride and his station are too strong and he would be 
viewed as weak and like viewed negatively if that were to be the case. So he needs to maintain this sort of air of animosity towards Lysander, even though it's kind of falling apart. Okay. Yeah. I definitely understand where you're coming from, but I I think that some of it is just instead I I would pitch you on the idea of of him instead being so sold on the idea of needing to earn someone's love that he he fails to frequently and that he has failed to earn everyone's love. And I think in some ways I immediately draw the comparison in my head to to me, Ajax has a lot of parallels with Tactus. So he and Tactus to me have very similar paths through the story. The reason that I think I am just the slightest bit more on Ajax's side versus Tactus's is because of the sort of rape thing that happens at the beginning of Red Rising 1. And so, like, I I fundamentally had an issue with forgiving Tactus. So for me, between Tactus and Ajax, there feels like there's this similar line that they both tread and walk on, right? And they're both emotionally misunderstood and mistreated by folks and so i think by and large they're seeking the approval of others so it's it's tough because i i I really in this in this moment and in these set of chapters turned around on ajax from being this asshole to actually understanding why he was doing the things that he was doing and i think it's that he's just seeking some form of affection and he missed that familial connection. That's why he ultimately, in the very end of this, backs Lysander, is because he understands that this is that's real love, that's real appreciation, as far as his understanding of it goes. So he's not trading leashes or reins from one person to the next. He truly feels, in the same way that Tactus did, love. This is the first time that I will admit that I think that Lorne made the wrong choice in killing Tactus because I can see it on Lysander's face. Or it's not Lysander, on Ajax's face. And I can understand it fundamentally now. A couple of books later. <laughs> finally. Finally. That was a lot, anyway. Yeah, it is a lot. I still don't know. That's fair. That's fair. I think, I'm, just, yeah, I think I'm, pushing, I'm pushing back a little bit. You yeah. Know? Yeah. What's what's fun, PJ, is that I don't know what happens next, and you also don't know what happens next. But I, my scope is a little bit further than your scope, right? But not infinite. Like I don't have the end in mind. So mm-hmm. like, <laughs> you don't know that I'm prognosticating when I'm prognosticating. That's <laughs> so, true. Which is kind of a, a weird, fun <laughs> dynamic that's happened inside of this book. And so. People who are listening will understand my take, I think. <laughs> and mm. you might not until later. It's fine. That's okay. On on any number of things, not this immediate thing. But this meeting, of course, is interrupted by one of the most fascinating conversations between a brother and father that I have ever seen in literature. And what do you make of the spiteful, cold, and distant interaction between the pair of Olympic knights that we have here on display? Atlas and Ajax as they chat fear i mean just as it's described there's very little little love here but there's no love i don't think it's i I don't i don't disagree or i I don't agree with that okay i'll make the case case. there's no love 
from Atlas. But I disagree with I'm that. So but curious. I will I'm make, so curious. All right, all right, all right. All right. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. I feel like Atlas completely understands Ajax's position and is strangely trying to be a motivating force for him. Okay. It's a twisted and cold and unemotional way of doing it, but it's not malicious, I don't think. Atlas is trying to push Ajax to be the soldier and warrior that he knows he can be. And mm. Ajax, I feel, is benefiting from that push without necessarily understanding that it's meant to be a helpful push. Like, he he is viewing this interaction with his father as adversarial and he is trying to become he's becoming a better warrior and agent out of spite and atlas is being cold and not necessarily fatherly but is doing he, he he's pushing his son in the way that he knows how to push it's it's a difference of perspective but i feel like atlas or i i feel like ajax is getting out of atlas what atlas is intending but they're coming at it from two very different perspectives if that makes sense yeah it's not love it's not warm but i don't i don't think there's any malice from atlas towards ajax i i think uh, yes I, i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with you i don't think there's any malice but i don't think there's any love either i don't think that it's anything that is more than a a general to a sergeant it is it is less than that even because he, okay. he even says that like you are literally just a combination of genes that atalantia thought was a good idea and that's <laughs> but i feel hear... like that's a that's a shortcoming of atlas as opposed to a decided understanding of their relationship i i, I feel like atlas just doesn't have the capability or capacity to or 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 able to be warm and fuzzy in any sort of loving way. I'm not expecting him to be warm and fuzzy, but you don't necessarily need to be warm and fuzzy to acknowledge your child. And I don't think he's acknowledging Ajax as a child so much as, as he is a sperm donation. And that's that's, that's really my my like lock-in point here. It's not to say that anything else is incorrect about what you're saying in terms of like he is pushing ajax to be better and there are all these other components to it but i i think that that is more general than it is father okay i see that that way at the very least mm -hmm. and i think especially in the way that ajax pushes against it he doesn't see him as a father even though he might call him as such and i think that is also lysander's perspective to some degrees he's confident that ajax would call him father but not that atlas would call him son yeah that's probably true also, I have to just tie in and add this here. How are you feeling about Atlas at the moment? Like, how are you feeling about this dude being in the story so much from where he was before? Hmm. 
the fear night I'm omnipresent kind of happy almost. about it weirdly i fucking like, love it i, I fucking really, love I, it I, he's I terrifying it. ridiculous i still we talked about it last week mm-hmm. i don't know if that feels uh disingenuous to say or, or not disingenuous but somehow um condemning to say i feel like what we're rep- like what what we're exposed to is not an act but a a callous we are experienced we we are experiencing a callous of atlas and him as a as a pillar of the war is maybe not a 180 degree turn from what we're ex- exposed to but it's but, different than he would like to be. Yeah, I, I, I feel like yeah. this is a persona that he has to maintain. Right. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I, I think especially, we talked about this a little bit last week, but especially during his like showing up during the play, I think that wasn't just a thing to keep track of Lysander. I think there was a genuine choice that he made to like be there because he wanted to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Atalantia makes a grand re-entrance into the story as she chases down and absolutely wrecks two Chitana with her bow. We get a couple of critical war details while she guts her prey. The twins of South Pacifica, the weapons that Darrow sent supplies that sent Darrow supplies during Dark Age, have been reclaimed by Diomedes, as we assumed. Luna is completely is currently under siege, and South Pacifica Pacifica is stubborn as hell in the war effort. Who is a little tossed? I'm a little, I'm just a little intoxicated. Atlantia finishes up cleaning her prey and feeds Tharsis's head to the dogs before informing Lysander that Earth will be Scipio Al Faults. And it almost appears as though she's been indulging, perhaps in his son. I mean, the comment about the false son looks like he's made for one thing frontal assaults. It's so, it's so fucking funny. <laughs> it's it's so funny. It's so funny that you interpreted it that way. And I get I get in posts that it was supposed to be. But when I reread it this time, I went. So like he's a big bulky dude that's like going to get hit like he's a linebacker. Nah, I imagine him fucks. as like just a big. Now that guy fucks. I get it. I get it. That guy. That guy fucks. He is. Like you're playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater and you go like muscle and you ramp out the muscle and you go thin and you ramp out the thin, you ramp it down the thin and and then you ramp up the legs and you got big fucking legs. And so he's got <laughs> hips for days, <laughs> but he's got a waist that no one can imagine at like 22 inches. And uh, yeah, he's yep. 22, 34 and uh, <laughs> just fucks, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so she good. also makes a rep. Go ahead. No, nothing. Okay. All right. She also makes a reference to her favorite Roman strawberry and reads the quote. No friend ever served me and no enemy ever wronged me whom I have never repaid in full, which isn't only a prelude to what we're about to be seeing happen with Lysander, but is also a quote from Sula, the first Roman dictator to seize power through force. Uh, back in 63 BC. So, yeah. long, long time it seems ago. seems like a, I'd say a fairly apt quote. Yeah. It feels very matching of her, you know, yeah. her whole thing. It seems like pretty great foreshadowing. 
<laughs> with Glorostes for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, there's Glorostes. There's also just Lysander taking a stand against Atalante in general and mm-hmm. the hanging in the Inevitable. balance of what what that means for for Lysander going forward. So, of course, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. But Sulla was was notable, of course, as I, I had mentioned, for being the first of the dictators. And again, dictator was an appointed position like it is instead of the 200 here. So it wasn't something in, entirely foreign. But the thing that made Sulla different is that he had acquiesced the votes via having officers stop on doors and having them beat down the doors and having them be there and put pressure on them where they couldn't be home. So it's very like Fourth Amendmenty in the United States in in terms of like what was what was being forced upon them to make them vote to make him dictator. So, yeah, as opposed to Caesar, of whom was voted because they needed a singular authority in the moment. So a little different, a little different. There's also a little mention that I want to bring up as they're talking about the fall reclaiming the whole territory and how that was stolen from the Thorn family at the end of Octavia's last gala. And we know that there's one surviving member of the Thorn family. So who is that again? We don't know her name. So who who was the like Octavia's gala? Was, was Octavia's Gala, there was no one named that was a Thorn person, but we know that there was a girl that survived from the Thorn family, and she's commonly referred to in the fandom as Thorn Girl, and everyone's expecting her to show up and fuck shit up. So it's kind of okay. a fun little nod, I think, in many ways. It'd be kind of funny to have her be completely inconsequential. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, it would be kind of fun to like just have her show oh, up and like get shot great. to pieces. From, from a story perspective, it would be awesome to have her be not no. inconsequential, but it'd be funny. Hello, my name is everyone else to like assume to that that she'll come to like be an important yeah. force and then just not be. Yeah, totally get it. Mm. I'm. I'm not going to let you tread over my joke, though, because I did think that, hello, <laughs> my name is Inigo Thorn Girl. <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die. He's, he's a great joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I imagine her name is Inigo now, and that is the only thing that I will refer to her as from here on out. Inigo Thorn Girl. I like it. Yeah. PJ, if you wanted to know what meme to produce for next week, for this week, rather, that's it. That's the meme. <laughs> All right. <Deal>. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. All right. But yeah, I, it's it's really it's kind of throw away more than anything else. So, you know, it it is what it is. Atalantia, by all accounts, though, seems to be delaying the invasion of Mars as much as possible in a clear attempt to solidify her own power, even if it means pissing off the rim by delaying the invasion of Mars. From Atlas, we get a brief explainer on why it's unlikely to go well on Mars once they do attack without following each of the small steps on the path to claiming it. So he really kind of gives and paints the picture of why she's choosing some of these decisions while not necessarily doing more than that he's not stepping outside of his bounds and advocating for it he's just speaking truth to what's been said yeah no opinion i think there's always an opinion 
But I don't think Atlas shares an opinion here. No, but I, I think he... I don't think he's as independent as someone like Lorne, you know? Sure. I, I, okay. I, I think his dissertation on the subject of Mars and what it would mean to siege or try to take Mars um, is eye-opening and convincing. But I also believe that it's uh, hyperbole and overblown and mostly political theater. Atalantia needs, needs there to be a rock-solid reason to not take Mars. And this is that. Like, th- this is that reason. It, is It's going to be fucking hard. And, like, yes, it's going to be fucking <laughs> hard. But it has to be done in the end. But it's going to have to be so. done anyway. And I, I, I just, I, I feel like Atlas is not lying in any of these claims, but I also feel like Atlas is a tool for Atalantia. Atlas is not an independent source to be trusted at his word. Yeah, and that's fair. That's fair. I, I wouldn't say necessarily that he's supposed to be trusted at his word strictly. Like, he's not strictly factual, but he is at the very least relaying... Uh, relaying nothing hmm, how do i say this he's not trying to convey an opinion if that makes sense like he's he's he is giving he is sharing what he believes to be a fundamental truth and as such that is an opinion and it is giving a perception but he is not trying to sway necessarily i'm trying he's being more objective than he is subjective i feel like he's at the very least as objective as he could possibly be while also being Atalantia's puppet. There we go. That's kind of, that's what I was trying to kind of pick at. I, I, it was a little bit tough to get there, but yes, exactly. <laughs> to feed into not necessarily being your puppet. Sure. We can, we can extend that a little bit, but being as objective as he possibly could be to the opinion of the people in the room. He is modern media for whatever uh, political divide they find themselves on. Like, yes, he technically is not lying, but there's a slant. Yeah, absolutely. Slant is a good way of putting it. And then there's Glorostes, Glorastes. We're not going to... I mean, like, we don't have a whole lot more time to talk about him because he's dead at the end of this week. But uh, maybe. Oh, God. Probably. Brutal. Yeah, fair. He's tied up and chained as such. And Atlantia reveals that she knows Lysander's true intent, including everything with Apollonius the Minotaur. She asks for a sign of fidelity in front of the 200 and for him to stand there among her and to be the one to kind of lend the credence of the name Selenius behind her and the light bringer of the loon and that being the sort of backing that she needs. They eventually split after she explains that she is willing to do anything for power and that shows Lysander exactly who he's dealing with as she continues this sort of honest streak of sorts. On the grand scheme of things, I don't feel bad for the motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, no. Drink up, bitch. <laughs> like, I don't know. 
fuck you. You're talking to me? No. Yeah. Or Gil Rosties. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he definitely sold himself out. It's it's very much a it's very much a I slept with the wolves and now I'm getting eaten by the wolves. Didn't realize that he was a sheep. Sheep sleep with wolves? No, but the sheep did. That's, That's kind of impressive. Well, I mean, he didn't really make it that long, so is it? I don't think it is. We pick up a bit later <laughs> at Citadel in New Sparta, where Atlas and Lysander share a meal and a drink as Atalantia parties on her own. And they share a genuinely incredible moment between the two of them that makes me finally see Ajax for who he is. Really poorly treated puppy on the wrong side of the war. I'd mentioned the comparisons immediately to Tactus, but it does feel like he is kind of sitting in this space of of needing someone to and, and understanding what genuine love is and appreciation and kind of gets more of that than I think he ever expected from Lysander. And maybe it's just so absent in his life that he he didn't anticipate it. But as such, it's a lot to parse. I could yeah. believe that. I, I could also just believe that he's been kicked around by Atalantia for two for 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 long enough that he's been disenchanted by it, yeah. and and Lysander is the next the next person being enchanted, the next the closest person that Ajax could impart any sort of influence upon. That's the way I'm kind of thinking about it is it's a disenchantment and drive to not see someone else go through the same thing he did. It, 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 it's it. Ajax is in a tough spot at this point to like really comment on fully his thoughts. I think by the end of the week, we kind of can like more accurately i think portray his thoughts is like turning around and rejecting sort of his history in a big way and in turning that corner in the same way that tactus did but i i think there's difficulty at this point where he's still wrestling with it in a big way mm-hmm. i mean he especially as lysander opens up and is very honest in the moment with the jam ring on and says and tells him that atalantia killed his parents and he replies she said you'd say that the problem with loving the two of you is that you were both meant for the Palatine. I never was. You're both too good at lying. Yeah, that opens up a lot of questions. Like, obviously, she knows what she did to to Lysander's parents, but the there's no way she would bring that up just as a hedge bet. Like, she only brings that up if she knows for sure that Lysander knows and is willing to uh, use it as ammunition. So their psyche kind of thought process that comes into play here, there's the idea of Glorostes, and if he was tortured for information, she has seemingly way more information than kind of terrifying to speculate on where she gets that information and that's the hard part of where we're left with that perspective on where she comes from and has that information from so we're, we're left with a lot of questions 
But with that, we move into chapter 16, Lysander, the 200. We transition quickly to Rome, where the meeting of the 200 is going to be held. And there is really a quick sleight of hand here right at the beginning of the chapter that I practically missed on my first and second read through as Horatia shows herself as his as Lysander's true accomplice and ally. And this must have all been a part of contingency 11 or 13 or whatever the number was all along. I think it's 11. Yeah, it doesn't matter, though. I miss it, too. Totally. It's um, so fast. And I, I think it's, it's understandable light. as well because it, it only makes sense if you understand what's happening. And it, it's a quick enough and uh, innocuous enough conversation that without understanding what's going to happen in the next 15, 20 pages, it, it's unremarkable. So I don't, I don't think... It's I don't think this is something that most people would pick up on. Yeah, it's it's a sort of it's a minor thing and it's a quick thing, too. And I don't mean to put that much sort of I don't want to call it prescience necessarily, but that much attention to it. It was just one of those things where like it passes you by. You don't realize what it means. And then in any sort of recontextualization, you're like, oh, shit, this is clearly the handoff that he knows what's going to happen and what's going to go down. Right. You know, to end our week as we're going to look at it. So I love that we're having this conversation with the 200 inside of the Roman Colosseum. Of course, there's just so much brazen hubris about choosing this location in Rome, in the Colosseum, built by the built by the Flavians, making jokes about Lysander and his games and like this sort of direct connection that he has. It, it just feels like this is so built for this moment in such a. It should be predictable, but there again, it's nothing but brazen hubris. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fucking hilarious, <clears throat> and they know it's brazen. Mm-hmm. They know they they understand the hubris that they're exhibiting, mm-hmm. but I feel like that's the point, you know. Like, despite the hubris, despite the uh, the glaring commentary that it it puts upon you yeah we're gonna do it anyway because we can and because it makes not political but contextual sense i guess yeah they're 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 brazen they are icarusian and they Mm. don't care yeah they're they're they are seeking the sun in a big way so I, i totally understand that There's also this continued concept of inheritance that is thrown about, as we see again with Atalanta taking and consolidating as much power as possible, this time through sending 10 legions to claim the Venetian docks, as it seems that Cornelius and Asmodeus will lose the docks anyway to Apollonius. And so, as such, it makes sense for her to just take claim, and the society will rule and they will be hers from here on out, because at the very least, she won't fuck it up. I mean, obviously, I I would hesitate and balk at the the idea of saying that I'm rooting for Lysander in any way, <laughs> in in almost any situation. But I feel like in this situation, he's pretty preferable to Atalantia. Um, I mean, yeah, no doubt. Fuck, man, even. 
even that caveat, like even given that sort of leverage or that that sort of uh, opening and ability to say like, yeah, understanding the context within that framework, we can we can say that we hope for Lysander as opposed to Atalantia. Like even then, it's hard. It's so hard to root for somebody that uses inheritance and like birthright and what what would be it there's another term i don't know uh, but entitlement just using entitlement as a reason for power and seemingly as a primary reason for seeking power is really scummy to use as a primary source and so in this moment I'd still prefer him over Atlantia, so... Yeah. You know. It it always begs the question, not of whether or not Atlantia or Lysander is better, but, like, obviously, Lysander is better, but is that even a debate worth having? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not the debate that anyone should be having, and in the end, I mean, I've there's a lot to say, I think, especially as we get into Mars Must Fall, but we're gonna... We'll just take that as it happens here. Mm-hmm. Um... As we approach the 200, though, Diomedes steps up as he's next on the docket, according to Julia Albalona. He gives his report, but then refuses to give up the rostrum as he should. His mother, Dido, speaks up, and Atalanta quickly proves herself brutal as she mentions, mentions both Dido's dead husband and dead daughter. She calms avoids rage and informs Atalanti of the promises that she's standing on and hasn't made good upon yet. And the argument breaks out among the ranks between the different sections. We are existing within this den of vipers. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't find the way that this government or special counsel or whatever you want to call it operates as fascinating and intriguing it's messy and it's high stakes and it's it's frustrating (laughs) but everybody is very very good at playing this game (laughs) seeing it laid out and seeing the way that they joust with each other is a lot of fun and exciting yeah the the jousting is i mean impenetrable in a a lot of ways where it's like there is just so much here but this is so unique i think in the way that it is clever and well done inside of the series that it is unlike a lot of others and i just appreciate the way that this is all laid out in the end the rim yield the rim yields back their time and the body now has this moment to speak before atalanti is allowed to retort and how much there's just this sword of damocles lingering over the entire thing with atlas you know we'd mentioned earlier obviously with sola being the example of like clearly you can make a move or you cannot make a move and because you had people in your house you weren't able to make any decisions so you voted for the thing atlas is that for them and i think even the death of tharsis is enough to keep people in line like tharsis is a multi-layered crime. It wasn't just to put Lysander back and Apollonius back, but it was also to show everyone else, I think, inside of this room that anyone is vulnerable, no matter their safe, their precariously safe position inside of the society, which is also mm-hmm. something that Lysander latches onto and talks on the next chapter. But holy shit. 
Anyone who challenges her tyranny is just absolutely fucked. After no one speaks, she's allowed to step up and have her moment to address what must happen. She does and explains that Lysander will lead the charge on the moon. And then he stands and thus begins the next <laughs> chapter. But that was a shit ton of stuff. So what, what, how, how do you, what do you, how do you, what do you? How do I, what do I? Atlas is clearly and understandably over the top intimidating. But I feel like his relationship with Lysander was different from almost any other person that interacts with Atlas. So I'm very, very, very curious to see what this relationship bears, what fruit this relationship bears for Lysander within this section. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to come, right? Like we are, we are on the precipice of something great and it is happening. And I mean, dangerous in its own right, but I do want to bring up as well, Atlas being a creepy owl, tilting his head up and, you know, just kind of being that, that man that's above everything again, just adds this looming personality that he has. I mean, I'll never get over my love affair with Atlas. I fucking, Atlas, he's oh great. My God. He's awesome. He's terrifying. For whatever reason in my head, I'm recollecting rafters. Hmm. That Atlas is in right now, and I know like this is an open air assembly. So is he just floating several dozen feet off the ground in grab boots? No, he's he's kind of in a ring above and like kind of behind, but he's again over top. So he's kind of he's there, he's omnipresent. But it's not just unstructured. No, no, he's not just flying there, literally hanging above his head. He's not literally the sort of Damocles. Okay. Do you know the story of the sort of Damocles? Do you know what that is? Vaguely. Okay, so for folks who don't know, the sort of Damocles, and it, I think it's even given a little bit more of an explanation when Lysander breaks into his speech in the next chapter, the sort of Damocles is this idea of a courtier of the king of Dam- King Damocles in Rome presented this idea to Damocles and he was like, Hey, you can be King for a day and, and have all the power and have all the things. And and that'll be, that'll be great. And I'll, I'll let you do that because I think he thought that he would do a good job. And he was like, okay, Damocles was like, totally, I'll, I'll totally do that. And so what the King did is he set up basically a parable, but he set up a sword with a single lion's hair braiding down to the handle and hanging over his head while he was sitting on the throne and he was only allowed to sit on the throne. So while he was making all of his decisions over the course of a day and had to do all these things, he felt this unnameable pressure that was provided by power, which is the sort of Damocles that at any moment could fall and kill you as that fragile thread that gave you power could break. So that's vaguely the sort of Damocles. So Atlas, in many ways, represents that sword of like, all right, I'll give you enough leash, but when's too much leash potentially? Like, when do I drop the sword? If ever. Maybe the sword isn't one that Atalantia can choose to drop on the other side of that coin, too. Maybe. That's a gamble. Definitely a gamble. I'm just throwing it out there. It's a concept. 
Right. All right. With that, we move into our final chapter of the week. Chapter 17, Lysander, Mars Must Fall. This entire damn chapter is fucking incredible. Lysander, in many ways, doing what he does best. He's turning to politicking and the philosophy that he studied for years finally into some form of action. He understands what must be done and calls after Diomedes to stay to hear him out in the moment. He's so well spoken. It's it's just kind of fun to hear him talk. It's ridiculous. It's insane. He, ah, man, he does such a good job in these chapters of being like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, rally behind, lie, sand, wait. He he supports something that I don't actually agree with, but God damn it, was I chanting for just a brief moment. <laughs> so after a brief tirade, he's called out by Julia in the moment while he's on the floor, and he fires back some specifics about the rules as she calls him out for playing games. Horatio reveals that she has the 30 members required for him to proceed with his interjection because he's an heir of Loon and of Selenius, and as such, Lysander has allowed his turn to speak. Atlantia, needless to say, reacts poorly to having what? the floor stolen from her. I don't believe that. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have guessed no, that. You don't? Really? Um, I, I fucking love Julia's speech in this moment, keeping Atalantia in line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, really pointing out. And I mean, it's great for us as readers and unfamiliar with the way that the society builds their, their political structure. But on a personal level, it's great to see any sort of human mishap on the, on the political battlefield, you know? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. These, these are the people, the humans Mm -hmm. that are representing us and they're, they're, they're just as human as we are. Very true. Yeah, but not so human that they should, you know, remove a parasite from their skull to maintain their own autonomy and not forget the people that they're sacrificing their lives for, right? No. Totally different. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Just had to, you know, clarify the air. Uh, as he begins his speech, it's clear that he is taking on a ton of respect, pouring out from Ajax, protecting him. Well, he's taken this great risk of not kneeling in front of Atalantia, despite all of the warnings, despite all of the pleadings that he might do something different. He chooses instead to stand and to stand in a truly profound way. It's kind of like him breaking from the gaslighting, you know, like he's finally yeah. understood that, like, it's possible, right? It's 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 a very personal understanding and a, a very personal come to i was gonna say come to jesus but it's like the opposite of that moment <laughs> go away from jesus moment i don't, I don't know what to make of it on, on a micro level but it, 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 it i don't know yeah fair enough fair enough it's tough to parse So I want to read a little excerpt. You could read this entire fucking chapter. I I considered for a brief moment just inserting some voiceover doing the Lysander bit here just because it is so 
brilliantly written on Pierce's part. So instead of doing that and reading this whole thing and just recounting it, I want to just pick out the first part here as a start and we'll talk about the other portions. Um, But if there is any singular chapter that I think is some of Pierce's best philosophical, ethical or political work, it is this chapter. It is brilliantly composed from front to back. Despite whether or not you agree with it, that doesn't matter in the context of what he's composed. So, as written, when I was a child, I asked my sovereign what the society meant to me. I answered then as I would answer now. The society is a light in the darkness. My sovereign then asked me what gold meant to me. Knowing my own opinion meant very little, I echoed the words of our greatest hero, Selenius the Lightbringer. I told her that we are those who tend to the flame and shepherd the human flock. But the more that I look around, I wonder, where have all the shepherds gone? In their place, I see only wolves and sheep. Oh, man. And Lysander, over the course of this lengthy speech, gets to the heart of things. Everything lies in really, really cautious and precarious balance. And that really, there is more than one sword over the society's head in the moment. God... Damn it. What a fucking speech. Oh, it's, it's so, so well delivered. It's so well yeah. done. I had a great time reading it. I had a great time listening to this section. Tim Gerard Reynolds, as always, delivers this speech flawlessly, but even like trying to rem- remove myself from the section. It's gorgeous. It's so well done. So incredible. Yeah, it is lovely. Um, eventually, he gets to the heart of it after igniting the crowd of 200 into a fury. Mars must fall. It cannot be Luna. It cannot be anything else. It must be Mars. He says, we have the will to fight our enemy. Let us have the courage, the guts to trust one another. Only then can we show our enemies, our people, ourselves that when gold is indivisible gold is invincible that's pretty fucking brilliant you know it's as good as fucking nero's line in the first book yeah you know Uh, i mean from the perspective of adaptation i think it's almost better entirely yeah it'll be fun to see yeah oh man just there's so much. There's so much that's lurking here on the surface, and I absolutely adore it. All of it. I just fundamentally cannot wait to see this become a thing. Yeah. But Atalantia retorts, saying that it must be he who leads best. And Lysander says, no, it's not him. He's not the one. And instead throws up the horns of the Minotaur right on his forehead. And I remember hitting that part for the first time and just fucking squealing <laughs> as I as I heard it. I did not expect to be so excited about this sort of outpour of acclaim for Apollonius. And by God, if if nothing, you know, Pierce has given us a lot of villains to root for in various contexts for all kinds of different reasons. But Jesus Christ, in your next series, Pierce, you have to make us root for heroes in the same way, because <laughs> God damn it, do I wish that I could feel the same sort of drive <laughs> that I do for when Apple has a moment. I mean, is that a commentary on Pierce Brown's understanding of what's right? 
I don't think so. I, I think it's entirely <laughs> I'm that like, he, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm totally I, I think kidding. it was entirely that he didn't understand <laughs> that like what he was doing was going to be so cool and attractive and like this whole thing, right? Like he didn't mm-hmm. believe. I mean, I, I think it's also there's something to be said about like going from your first series and then also carrying the baggage of of that first series into the second series. So I, I think that's what's more indicative. Like Severo doesn't necessarily have a battle cry because it's so conflicted with Darrow also as a leader, as Ares. Like they're both Ares in different contexts in the original series. So like there's there's just some conflict in identity, whereas Apollonius is just this solid thing. He's the Minotaur. He summons the demon. He is this he's this thing that we know and understand. And so he he drives those things out of us, even though we're literally rooting for absolutely the worst and wrong thing at the moment. Speaking of the Minotaur and and the sort of hand signal, mm-hmm. what I've seen the most is not is very counter to what I believe. But what I've seen the most is something like this, like a single mm-hmm. hand with like the sort of like index finger and pinky being the horns of the Minotaur. I can also imagine two first fingers being horns, but what I imagine and it doesn't seem backed up by the literature itself, but thumbs, your brain, thumbs touching the temples and pinkies out with the other three fingers tucked downwards. Like, this is what I think of as minotaur horns. And I don't think that's right. That is funny. Funny enough, the idea of like thumbs to temples, right? And like putting it out there is more indicative of the size of the minotaur right. horns, right? And, so like, uh, I feel and like of minotaur summons. horns in general. Like, they're large it, horns. It, it evokes it for sure. So I, I definitely can understand that. But like the quick like thumb, forefinger, rock hands, basically the goat on your forehead is, I think, the easier the summoning move. But yeah, I, I, there's also something goofy about doing like a two handed thing. It's very <laughs> Monty Python-esque immediately <laughs> yeah, to me, at the very least. But it's the fucking moose. It's the. Oh, thing. Yeah, but, yeah, but but with. But with but yeah. just just thumbs and pinkies out, it's still fucking weird. But I get it. <laughs> it is. But that that feels more Apollonius than this does. It does. It takes effort, as Mo says, and I would agree with that. And Apollonius demands effort. Apollonius deserves effort. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Apollonius love that. has earned effort. Yeah. Yeah. So in the moment as well, there, there's a couple of other things that happen here. Worse is her reaction when she finds out that peace has already been brokered between the Carthii and Apollonius. And Horatia gives Lysander a little title here as she announces it. Lysander is Lysander the Peacemaker. We then see a little floating cube explaining exactly what happened as Valeria Alcarthii has claimed her inheritance and allied with Apollonius. I mean, this whole this whole exchange is pretty fucking funny, right? It's very funny. It's so funny. So Um, good. This is the moment through this entire series. This is the moment where I like in my head 
it clicked with me that Lysander is not a child anymore. Like, mm, even through the okay. games, even through his, like, transportation here to Earth, he's felt childish and naive. But this section has proven his his place in the adult world of things that we're dealing with i can't i can't put specific reasonings behind all of it but for whatever reason Mm -hmm. like this this was the turning point for lysander in my head on like if he was a, a child or an adult yeah I, I get that. This is him finally becoming more than the philosopher kid that he's been for so long. Yeah. This is him enacting that in a big way. So I absolutely agree with you. I do want totally to if if that's the case, if that's true and not just my perspective and not just your perspective, but like the way that he's supposed to be portrayed. Mm-hmm. Does that mean Atalantia will no longer be interested in him sexually? <laughs> being no longer a child oh i don't (laughs) that was not where i mean she's she's into frontal assaults is this not a frontal assault of sorts frontal lobe assault at the very least i don't know come on chris hansen not wrong get this bitch (laughs) chris hansen We summoned the ghost of Chris Hansen back into the podcast. The ghost of Chris Hansen? I mean, he's, he's not dead. Just his spirit lingers into catch up predator mode. He, he does other things. Oh, God. God. Well done. Well done. Apple, of course, also manages to get his own speech off here, although reduced, as is stated, <laughs> which almost feels like an editor's note. So it's to be like, come on, Apple can't be that ridiculous all the time, right? He and can't Pierce be. Like, he all right, should be. This, he is. This one time he can tone it down because he probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, It was Darrow who attacked the docks with the Atomics, as many of you know. It was Darrow who sparked the battle. It is Darrow who fled me, laughing at the chaos in his wake. No more. You call me madman. You call me black sheep. I care not. My legions board my crafts of war. We sail on Mars to reclaim our homeland. We sail with Votum, with Loon. Join us, for Mars must fall. He's a supervillain. He's just a straight up supervillain. I fucking love it. I I don't care. I want him to survive fucking everything. And I want him to be the final adversarial confrontation that we deal with. I want them to get that duel on the beach. You know, on the the beach. I'm so with you. I'm so with you. <laughs> I want that duel on the beach. They've talked about it at this point. It's been set up. I need that duel on the beach. Maybe, maybe, maybe. he can turn that's, coat. That's but I'm fair. gonna. I'm, I'd be. I'd be okay with that as well. But if he's remaining adversarial, I want him to be the final confrontation. That's fair. I totally agree with that. Totally understand. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful little speech, though. 
Needless to say, Atalantia does not react well, to say the least. She continues with her plan for reclaiming Luna and will maybe join up later if she can <laughs> bother. <laughs> and he tells her fully that he knows that she killed Lysander's mother and father. She retorts quietly. Don't let Glorosti's death haunt you, Lysander. Now that you're in the game, he won't be the last friend you sacrifice. All right. Maybe. But also, I'd argue, he's kind of, Glorostes was kind of Lysander's only friend. So. Right. I mean, only adult friend, you know? Well, yeah. So, but even so, the idea of he's the only friend you'll sacrifice. If he's your only friend, he will be your only friend you sacrifice. I mean, like Ajax is kind of a friend. Cicero mm-hmm. is kind of a friend. Horatio That's is kind of tenuous. a Horatio is kind of a friend. They're allies. Yeah, okay. okay. I can accept that. It's fair. Lysander no, you're right. Doesn't no, Lysander do doesn't do friends. He just does brothers. He did for Glorostes, and that was the exception. I think. It's fair. It's fair. So, Ajax stands with Lysander with someone who's shown to have his spine, have his back, and do the unthinkable, which is standing against Atalante in the moment as they both watch Atlas fly away. I'm curious if this unity will endure in any way. I'm convinced there's games afoot on, on the part of Ajax, but weirdly, I kind of hope that these two stay united, at least mostly. I hope so, too. Man, nothing but hope. Nothing but nothing hope for but this hope. villainous group of characters that we are cheering for and then quietly realizing, oh shit, they're the villains <laughs> throughout this whole chapter. Right. So, yeah, it's it's tough. Again, I did say that we were going to pay off predictions at the beginning of this episode, but because I forgot to put it at the top, we're going to hold over these drinks until we're in person on Sunday this week. So do those punishments for together. those of you listening the day this comes out. That's two days from now. <laughs> yeah, it's not very, it's very quick. We're going to be doing this rapidly by all accounts. Yeah. So, but with that PJ, any other closing thoughts, anything else that you wanted to say about this week's reading? We kicked off Rampart. I don't think so. I, I feel like we've had some great. This has been this has been a great section. Yeah, it'd be PJ. It's been our longest recording in almost a year. It's oh god, we're over four hours. Shit. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm excited to see <laughs> when funny. Darrow bleeds into this section as well. I don't think that'll happen for at least another mm. part or two. Maybe not for the rest of this book. Whoa. But I would love to see him be the rampart that we're talking about instead of Phobos. All right. Cool. So with that, next week we'll be we will be taking off into the middle of part two by reading chapters 18 through 29. This is a long week, but it's almost the same page count for the record. It seems crazy. But it is almost the same page count. <laughs> it, it is 11 chapters. So, so uh, but through that's what 28 through 29 through, through 29. 29. That's why I grabbed my book to double check. It's through 29 through 29. Okay. 18 through 29. 
So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as ever, to Tim and Andrew for being the backbone that keeps the show going. Check out the links in the show notes where you can find the schedule, the Patreon, the previous episodes, the websites, social media accounts, all in one very nice, easy, convenient location. Yeah. So with that, we do want to also thank you, a new mixologist, of course, an existing patron. Thank you, a very different Andrew, not our Andrew. But thank you, Andrew, for moving yourself from barback to mixologist. We appreciate you. So glad to have the extra support. Hope you enjoy all the extra benefits that come therein. Beyond that, make sure that you leave us a five star review. Otherwise, we'll crimp your head into a bowl. And then I mean, did you need a more sound threat? Drink a Negroni, I guess. No, yeah. He'll drink a Negroni and watch while I do it. <laughs> I've got PJ has big hands, but I also don't have small hands. With that, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.